Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about podcasting. So we're going to talk about how we approach podcasting. What do we send out? How do we record them? How do we post them? Just kind of a general discussion. So if you've got questions about podcasting, today is your day. Uh, throw those into Makana. Uh, and also, if you've got other questions, you can throw them in now for the general discussion for the first hour. Uh, ask early, ask often, and make sure to vote. Take Look at every question and just say, I'm interested in that. I'm not interested in that. And just vote them up and down. Um, and uh, and if everyone votes, we'll get a lot of votes. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, and, uh, and But it gives us a sense of uh, you're really driving the show. The The run of show is driven by the producers and, and what you ask and, and how you vote. So uh, jump in early. And uh, the best time is before 5 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. So we have time to look at them. Um, but uh, you can also ask them during the show. We've got plenty of room for them today. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Alexander Knight here on the panel from Vancouver, B.C. How are you supposed to find your completed jobs for mid-journey inside of Discord? There are too many requests flying by, and I have a hard time finding them. Is there a way to get perhaps the results in a direct message? Javier. Yeah, it's, it's super uh, distracting to see all that thing flying around. Uh, so I only get to the public uh, channels to take, like, see what other people are doing, like get ideas and everything. You can react to any uh, prompt with an envelope reaction and it will send you a DM. But actually the best way to use your uh, your stuff is with a paid account. You can send direct messages to the bot and you can keep your conversation directly there and that'll be a lot easier. Go, John. Alexander, we have a uh, we have a server set up on Discord for Rocketry, and we have a dis we have Discord bot in there, and so I can put you in there, and then you can do Bid Journey inside there. It's way simpler. Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, I have a Discord bot on one of, on one of my Discords, and and specific channel. It can't you can't do it on other channels. You can only do it on that channel. And that works really well, and it saves a lot, uh, even in the uh, in the base uh, Discord account. So I can go back a few months and pull out my Discords. The other way, if you don't want to do that, just simply go up to the right hand corner of, of Discord and put your name into the uh, into the search. And on the right side, it will pull all of your posts. You'll have to do a little bit of searching from there, but at least they're all your posts that you're searching from. Yeah, and I. Subscription makes it a lot easier, and you can. There's two level. There was a couple. There's three levels of subscription, um, I believe. There is the fifteen dollar a month one that is basic, um, and that's still public. Then you can pay an extra twenty dollars a month to have it be private, so that you're you're not showing all the things that you're searching on in public. And then after that, you can. Um, there's a, a larger one that gives you more server time and is private. And that one is a little bit more expensive and and there it's great and then it's just a bot it's just a it's a friend of yours sitting there that you can sit there and talk to and send out requests uh and i do it i literally have it opened almost all day while i'm working because i'm doing all my keynote stuff now is all driven from mid-journey and so i'm constantly asking it for things you know, so that i can put them into my into my presentations uh, next question. Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota says, is anyone on the panel uh, on the panel familiar with the Sony 360 Reality Audio? I think Sony would be in the game with all the music there uh, they own and then there's a link there. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Oh yeah, they've been going side by side with Apple and their and their spatial audio. It's really no 
real difference between the two. It's just the name on that. I remember going to CES and, and they'd have the newest uh, set of headphones. I think they were the first ones to actually do where you take your phone and you take a picture of your ear and then uh, and then they'd figure out how the best headphone for that or the best setup for that. Uh, so I did a few of those. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's definitely uh, a good alternative to spatial audio. Yeah, it, there was, there's been, there's quite a few spatial audio solutions that are out there. Sony being one of the larger ones. And, and I think a lot of it is always driven from people that don't want to pay Dolby uh, licensing fees. <laughs> so they're like, well, how do we do our own and how do we build it? And I think that it was pretty close until Apple put spatial audio into music. Um, and once Apple kind of stepped down on Dolby, it kind of left, like everyone kind of very quickly lost interest in most of the other formats. And so because it was just the market was so big uh, for that, that that most people are mixing for it. They can still, you can build an Atmos mix and then convert it over, I believe, to the Sony. The Sony, you can author both of those from the same, you know, same source there. Um, but I have not uh, seen it in the wild, <laughs> you know, like, you know, other than you can find it on title or you can find it on other things. But again, as soon as Apple, um, kind of stepped down on it, we haven't seen stepped down on Dolby and just said, this is what we're going to use. Um, everyone kind of started lining up pretty quickly to just take on the one format. So I haven't seen a lot of other, other formats succeed at any real level, like, like that I would think, oh, I should develop something in that format. Uh, next question. Al Trivet in Carmichael, California says, anyone see the live demo of GPT-4, and if so, thoughts? And he's got a link there to it. Go ahead, John. Oh, boy, I was like a kid at Christmas time yesterday. GPT-4 yeah. was uh, released, and then Greg Brockman did a uh, the shortest presentation I've ever seen. It was only like 22 minutes long, basically for developers. He showed, he showed the significant features in... Um, uh, uh, live on on uh, YouTube, and uh, one of the big things, multimodal. So you can put an image now. You can put a link to an image up there, and it will describe the the actual image. So I found an old picture of Chris Fenwick sitting at his desk, and I thought it, he was an audio engineer with a smirk. You know how he has a smirk on his face all the time, which is pretty funny. But so that was one of the significant uh, improvements. They didn't increase the language parameters um, over over GPT-3.5. What they did is they spent a lot of time on safety and security uh, and made the model more way more efficient. Uh, and it takes tests way better now. They have a whole list of exams that it's taken, and it's pretty significant. Go, Jeffrey. I like the uh, OCR ability that they uh, they added to, so you could take a picture of your notes and and put it in. Although, once again, you gotta you gotta really watch out for what you're posting there because you don't want to you don't want people to to start uh, defining your stuff, especially with the taxes. That was the other thing. I don't know if I'd want to have Chat GPT. Do my, they, I'd want them to answer their basic questions, but I don't think I'd want them to tell me how I'm going to save on my taxes or how much I'm going to save on my taxes because that's that's a lot of personal information that goes in. And I think I know how to break chat GPT, and that's by posting a picture and asking, how many fingers are in this picture? <laughs> that's very good. Yeah, I you know, it was funny. I, um, I was going back and forth with someone on Twitter, a teacher. And we were talking about what you should be using, what you should be doing in English class. You know, that was the discussion was like, what what should um, people be teaching in English class? And and I have a pretty strong opinion that that kids should learn 
the mechanics of English. Like, you know, we don't have to worry about what we're, they should read what they want to read and write what they want about things that they want to write. But we should be looking at the technical skill of them, how, what level of comprehension they have and what level of writing they can do. And the, and the teacher said, well, if we did that, then I wouldn't be necessary. And I was like, no, no, you have to have somebody look at it. And then I, it was like, as soon as I wrote that, I was like, oh, I could use ChatGPT. <laughs> Like just, just you know, to I could use ChatGPT to um, not quite yet, but probably GTT because I was I was thinking about those testing that you could give students. You could you could do a lot more papers and have the AI just the AI might not be able to create new things as well as other things. We we've been thinking about how does ChatGPT create their term paper, but a more interesting question is how does ChatGPT analyze their term paper? Like so. When you say, if we just take the strunk and white rules and say, and apply them to this, number one is showing someone like annotating it. Like this is all the things you could have changed to make it more active and to make it more powerful. And you could have rephrased this and you could have done this. The big problem with papers for teachers is they have to read them all, you know, and they have to go through them. And what would be interesting, you could move to more papers actually, or more things where they're describing things if they, if you if you created something that was actually analyzing the structure of what they were doing and giving them expert feedback um, so that they could be technically better at what they do because most people don't exit school very good at that. <laughs> so, and so the machine would actually potentially do it better than, uh, than a human would, we just mostly because of it, its ability to mass process. You could take the whole class and do it in 15 minutes instead of all night you know, to read it. So it's just a, it doesn't mean that the teacher is not needed. It just means that the teacher could do things and, and then scan over those and see how it's doing and, and then answer questions and talk to them. But it would take a huge lift off of the teacher's um, plate so they could focus on things that are more discussive, discussion-based. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight, Vancouver, BC. Again, I was testing the HDMI output of my iPhone into an ATEM, but got nothing but black. I believe the Apple Lightning to HDMI adapter outputs 60 frames per second. However, the ATEM is manually set to 2997. Could that be the issue? Good, Courtney. It certainly could. Um, I would try and run it through. It may not like progressive 60 coming in. You know, 2997 or 1080i, if, if your Apple will do 1080i, if you plug that output, HDMI out, output out of that uh, converter, lightning to HDMI converter into an MDHX, if you have it, or an MD cross, it'll show you on the little LCD panel what it's actually outputting and not necessarily what Apple tells you it's outputting or the software tells you it's outputting. And that might be the difference. You might try plugging it into input number one, but then everything else will try and conform to that, and that may be even a bigger problem if everything, you know, then that will work, but maybe nothing else will when it tries to resynchronize it. So that's a couple of choices to check. Good, Bill. I haven't found any problem, and I use the actual Apple uh, adapter. I have an HDMI coming out of this and power going into it, and so I use this on an iPad Pro most of the time, but if I take my iPhone and plug it in directly, it works just as well. So there is some intelligence in there that's allowing it to work. I've had second-party adapter, third-party adapters, whatever you want to call them, fail to get a signal out, but most of the time this official Apple one works pretty reasonably and consistently. Yeah, I've had, it's been a nightmare to use anything other than the Apple adapters for me. From the Lightning, uh, it has just been, does not, I mean, there are so many things about it that don't work. Um, so uh, I would highly recommend an Apple branded Lightning to HDMI. Uh, I bought 
maybe five or six brands other than Apple, and I've stopped. <laughs> next question. Uh, next question comes from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. We are scheduled to interview Black Magic today at South by Southwest around 1245 Central. What should we ask those fine folks? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, uh, it's it's going to be at the convention center, so it'll actually be a regular standard booth. It'll probably be a smaller booth than what we would see at uh, NAB. Uh, usually at NAB, they have the public area where everybody get, gets to test the stuff and look at the stuff, and then the back area for all the press people. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case there. And then, of course, what products they're going to have on hand. They focus, they're focusing on the cinema camera, so I'm guessing that's where that's where everything is going to be. And then it's just going to uh, also determine on who is going to be there. Most of their people are very well-versed and can give you very good script answers. But if you're looking for something very deep dive onto it, then uh, then you, that might not be the right place to do that. So uh, since it's South by Southwest, I'd be focusing more on doing the independent uh, cameras and, and, and probably even get to talk to some independent creators as well. Good, Bill. I would annoy them terribly by talking to them at length about why they can't all get together between Blackmagic Raw and ProRes Raw and just make something that everybody can work with. I keep on asking, where's the 8K camera? When are we going to get an 8K camera? <laughs> like That would be like it would be uh, the, the 8K live camera. That's, the, that's what we're all looking for here. And uh, we have an 8K HyperDeck and we have an 8K switcher, but we don't have a camera. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy says, what can we expect in the next release of Zoom ISO? Uh, yeah, typically when you get this close to NAB, especially when you're talking about broadcast tools, uh, you often will um, uh, think about NAB being the target. So my guess is, is that the next Zoom ISO will release somewhere in the vicinity to uh, anything less than two weeks before, two or three weeks before NAB is probably when they'll want to release something or, or write at NAB to discuss it there because their broadcast is a big piece of what they do. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, is back with us when the large language model that Google has been building for the medical world, an AI chat pot, bot called MedPalm2, now consistently passes medical exam questions with a score of 85%, placing it at expert MD. Comment? Go ahead, John. Yeah, they're getting they're getting really good at test taking. So ChatGPT released their white paper on GPT-4 yesterday, and they listed off about 20 different professional exams that this thing takes compared to ChatGPT-3.5. No comparison. It scored 14.10 on the SATs, uh, the GMATs. It's it's in the uh, 80 percentile and above in every exam, uh, AP Biology, Calculus, Chemistry. But my favorite test that it passed was the sommelier test. <laughs> so it knows wines. <laughs> nice. I that's great. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So it's... I wouldn't like the taxes. I wouldn't want to have my mm -hmm. personal information put into there. But uh, I also see it like what Google Glass was doing, trying to do back in 2013. And that was basically have a pair of Google Glass sitting next to a defibrillator or a, a med kit. And then when somebody goes into an emergency situation, you have a place to ask a question. How do I do chest compressions? How, do I, how does this work? And get the, uh, uh, an, an accurate 
answer. Maybe not the totally correct answer, but an accurate answer. So you could try and save a person's life. So I yeah. like it a lot. And of course, learning. I, I, uh, I, I don't know whether that's a comment on how good chat GPT is or how useless tests are. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm still kind of, I, I, I'm just not sure that, that we know which one that means. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Courtney. What scares me about that uh, result is that they consider uh, MDs expert if they're only 85% right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, that's, that's, uh, yeah. that's kind of I mean, there's, uh, there's, disappointing. There's, there's a high mortality rate in that last 15%. Um, next, next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC says, has anyone tried the small rig RM75, small battery powered light? I have it plugged in over USB-C to a GAN charger. After 35 minutes, the output level drops from 100% to 60%. And he's got a link there to the system. Uh, so, so you've been playing with it, Alexander? Yeah, I just bought it and I've been running it for the last week or so, but I did notice that was, seems like very strange behavior and there's absolutely zero documentation about this, this problem. Yeah, I'm wondering, I, I, I'm going to bet that it isn't a heat problem. I mean, it's a heat problem, not a power problem. I bet you it's getting to a certain heat level and, it, uh, and then it drops down. Uh, is it, that's my guess is that it's got, it's got some, something that's protecting itself and it's turning off. It's probably, especially if you have a GAN char charger for a little light like that. Uh, now I wonder, the other question I have is that you put it on a GAN charger, um, and it might actually be pulling too much, uh, too much into it. We, we, uh, GAN charger I, I've, I've been learning is not, uh, you know, a, you know, fixes up doesn't fix everything in some cases it, it gives things too much power and they're 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 actually recharging and it's not that they're it's breaking them but it's increasing the heat on the component because it's pulling in so much uh you know it's pulling in so much uh, volt um uh current and so you may find that if you plugged it into something with less power that it may not it, i think it's overheating yeah go ahead bill yeah, I, I agree. Everything. I think Alex is sending you down a good road to experiment with. The other thing is that almost no lights, those little small lights, do I ever run on 100%. If there's any kind of dimming capability, and I don't know this one, I'd pull it down to about 75% of its output. Uh, also, depending on what you're using for, if you're using it for a key light, that's probably not the right device. Most of the time, those small lights, I just use as little obies to put a catch light in somebody's eye or something like that. So it doesn't really need to be very bright to do that. And that might solve the problem if you pull it off 100 down to somewhere in the upper eh, between 50 and 75 percent of its output that may make the draw so low that it doesn't cause some of these problems go ahead alexander yeah alex you raised a good point that actually makes me think now because the product came with a usb-c to type a uh, cable here and i actually haven't tested just plugging it directly like i've got a power yeah. distribution unit in front of me that has uh, like a one amp or a two add uh, 2.1 amp usb port so i could try that and see yeah. if that actually uh fixes it here so that's it, 12 it actually watts. is it like is that's running. a 12 watt that's a 12 watt output and if you yeah. you may be giving it 30 watts or 100 watts and and that may it it's not that it can't do that now i have some things that just don't even turn on they don't even charge as soon as you give them too much voltage off of a gan it will end again it will just immediately stop working like <laughs> just just like i can, that's way too much for me uh but and I, so I've, I've kind of been learning about what i can and can't plug it into it um anyway something to think about and the things that do plug into it if you put a 100 watt into something that can handle it it gets pretty warm that's that's why i was thinking about whether that might be the case 
Um, next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas. What just happened? Microsoft gave its Edge browser a new tool today called Copilot. Copilot is an AI assistant in Edge's right-hand sidebar. What other AI apps or browser plugins are out there now, or can we expect to see soon? Go ahead, John. So Microsoft did something very clever here. They call all their AI assistants Copilot because they're not offensive. A lot of people are still turned off by the term AI, and they're scared about the term AI. And so Microsoft has chosen Copilot. This is the name of the product that they use for Codex, which is the product that's built into, um, it's built into, my brain just shut off. The the programming code in GitHub is called Copilot. That's where they developed this name. But Copilot is, you know, as a, as a helper to human beings and it's not displacing human beings. You're going to see Copilot show up everywhere in Word, PowerPoint, Outlook, everywhere. They're going to they're going to use that brand name to soften the edge of AI integrated into all of their applications. It is it is something that you just start talking to. Like I have, I have ChatGPT. I was playing with ChatGPT4 yesterday and I decided I'm, I'm I make this Osh soup that ChatGPT3 gave me and I thought, well, it's time to have a new get a new recipe because ChatGPT4 is here. And so I asked for a new Osh soup. And I said, make me a great Osh soup. So it made me one. I said, make me an authentic one. And it just made me another one. And I told it how many, how many quarts I wanted to make of it. And it just figured out you know, how many. And then I said, I said, uh, but without the pasta. And then it just made me another one without the pasta. <laughs> I was just like, I'm never going back to recipes when I can just ask it. Ask it to, you know, keep on like, I want to do it for this many quarts or this many people. I want this kind of thing. I don't want this stuff in it. Like all the things that you wish you could get with the recipes and you're sitting just asking it all the, all the things. And, and you're not, and it's a conversation. You have to remember you're not like trying to rebuild your your question. You just keep on asking it. Well, do this and do this. And uh, yeah, and go ahead, uh, Courtney. Uh, I discovered a new tool uh, from uh, Matt Wolf's uh, site just the other day called Perplexity. And it's a plugin to, uh, I can show you it here. It's a plugin to Chrome. So you can add this Chrome. You click on the little thing here and you type uh, anything. So it's a, a AI assistant. But the interesting thing is you can either choose to search the internet the current domain or the current page. So if you have a certain site and you want to limit its responses to just the current domain, like, you know, what are you, CEO, corporate, uh, you know, corp, I can't type now. <laughs> what are new corporate tax laws? And it comes up with an answer. And it shows you links where it got the information and uh, alternate information there. And it's a plug-in. It goes wherever uh, Chrome does. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, very handy. Perplexity.ai. And also works on Apple iPhones as well. I do think that it's going to – this is – I mean, again, I – I know people think it's going to replace people. I don't think that's necessarily what's going to happen. I think there's really going to augment what we can do where we're simply just going, hey, I want to do this thing and I want to customize it and I want to, you know, look at this. And, and, and again, to go back to my recipe example, I think you're going to be able to take a picture of it, put it up there and go, but I don't want this. I can't. I don't want to have this in the in ingredients. What would you change with there? How would you do this? Or, you know, and so I think that you're the amount of customization that we're going to see very, very soon is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, just a reminder that uh, we have plenty of room for more questions. So if you've got uh, if you've got questions or voting, you, you know, we don't tax you for the vote yet. 
So, so it's still free, still free to vote. So um, vote on those questions and also ask the, ask questions, uh, it's general questions for the first hour. Remember, we're doing podcasting in the second hour. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. One pro return to office argument used by business leaders has been that offices can foster stronger connections between people. Would AI sentiment analysis incorporated into the collaboration tools we use help foster healthier connections between people? Go ahead, Javier. Well, I, I really wouldn't want to have like this. You didn't say thank you, robot. You didn't want like someone like someone checking your answer. Like you were very not you were not nice with that message. But it can help to give you like context because we sometimes use like some words or like uh, we, it happens to me that I write a message and I send it and I check it like two hours later and I was like or I wasn't so clear or I wasn't empathetic enough or so it can give you some hints and especially when you know the other person because now we're working in this diverse environment with people from all over the world and different backgrounds and different words have different meanings for different people so having these words like if you're speaking to Alex you should say it like this or he, he doesn't like to like fool around he go direct to the point or maybe for her she like tried to give it more context because he likes a more human connection I don't know like giving all that sort of thanks because it knows how you write and the other person writes so it can help but i don't like like the teacher like you're not being nice to your, your co-worker that would be good <laughs> that would be really kind of funny to have it in your thing like i can't believe and, and it should it should pop up with a little window that says i can't believe you're about to say that like i, I think you should really think about whether you hit send or not you know like like you know like it could be your it could be your uh, your gpt conscience you know like do you really do you really think that that's a good a good way to phrase that uh be funny next question next question comes to us from peter moore in auckland new zealand focus right scarlet in the effects loop into a guitar head amp from my mac with amplitude the guitar rig and, and so forth works no issues with latency but would you do it live any thoughts on having a scarlet in that loop i go ahead uh, alexander just reading that whole explanation of that whole setup makes me nervous for any kind of live use. I would not suggest it. Uh, for, for a live rig, if you weren't going to use just a straight up, you know, all analog tube setup with pedals, uh, Kemper Profiler is what most uh, guys use for modeling, um, you know, in a live scenario or uh, neural DSP. That's also another good solution. Uh, you could also use an Apollo, Universal Audio Apollo, because you do have DSP. If you have the right plugins, you can do it there. But just all those different software based um, native apps that would make me very nervous live. Go, ahead, Jeffrey. Just to quickly explain what's going on. So Amplitube and Guitar Rig and some of these others are where you bring the audio into the iPad or the iOS device, and then it uh, gives you a, uh, different pedals so you can control and, uh, and condition your audio and then bring it back out into the audio. With that said, I've done that before on uh, acoustic shows. I know that there are some uh, musicians uh, in the area that have that use this with the iRig Stomp, which is basically you put the iPad right on top of the pedal board or on a stand, and then it is the processor for this pedal board. So you have like uh, you ha actually have foot switches and uh, and a wah or a volume pedal with that. So they've they haven't had much problem for with that. But if yeah, if the system crashes, the system crashes, and that's that's the case with anything that's all in one. Next question. 
Zach Jeffries in Spokane, Washington, recently picked up a DeckLink Quad 2, but software like Wirecast haven't been modernized to take advantage of the multiple ports outside of Program Out. What software can I look at to get aux video mixes out of a switching program? I think that depends on whether Wirecast runs on a Mac and a PC, so it depends on whether you're on a Mac or a PC. I think that the one that I would look at on a PC is probably uh, vMix. Uh, vMix should be able to take advantage of those outputs. And on the Mac, I'd probably look at Memo Live. I know that Memo Live can. So vMix and Memo Live would be the two that I'd look at, uh, depending on Mac or PC, to make that actually work. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has a next question. It says, Mark Zuckerberg says that Facebook engineers perform better when they work in person. Thoughts? And he's got a link there. Uh, I, I, I've had the opportunity to sit in Facebook at a desk, you know, and uh, and try to get work done. I find it to be almost impossible to do any work or, or to think because people keep on talking to me and then there's people talking to each other and then there's people talking to other things. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree. I think that there are definitely things, if you're trying to hack things out or figure things out, I think that, uh, that it is a... Um, uh, I think that there's a possibility that it, that that those are g good ideas. I mean, and I admit that I had kind of a bit of an open office. My my la Pixel Core had a you know we had probably 40 employees and we had a handful of offices, but for the most part, every the doors were opened all the time. People just wandered in and out. Um, there was kind of there was no like I had an office, but it was mostly where people came to over to talk to me. When I look back on it, I probably, it would have been good for me to shut the door <laughs> three hours a day to get stuff done. You know, it was just very hard to think, you know, because you're getting interrupted all the time. I've really learned to, to uh, value continuous time to think about the same thing um, in a way that I didn't before. So I, I don't necessarily agree with, with that. I, I think most people hate it. <laughs> like they, they hate being in an open office. I think that they'd probably come back into the office if they gave, if, if you gave people offices, like not just cubicles, but offices, and you didn't pack them in like cattle, they'd probably want to come back. And, you know, there's a lot of ways for companies to bring people back, and it's creating a better lifestyle for them so that they feel like they can actually get stuff done. Having people around and being able to go to a conference room or sit around a table or have lunch together and talk about a problem, I think a lot of people would be really interested in that if they had their own office. But if they're, you know, packed into an open office, that's, it's not, people are not resisting coming back to the office as much as they are resisting an open office. Like that's the, that's what they hate, you know, and that's what they don't want to come back to. And so I think that, that companies are going to keep on digging through this, but they have a lot less employees, just build out the space, you know, let them have their, let them have some, some space there and let the ones that want to come back, come back. Next question. Zach Jeffers is back from Spokane, Washington. I'm testing video upload over Starlink in motion from vehicles with no cell service. Often connections drop and so forth. Any recommendations for video transport to our cloud server? Disconnects are fine. Trying to minimize gray compression artifacts. I'll go ahead, Jeffrey. So uh, Keenan was uh, testing this out a couple days ago. He was actually uh, driving, uh, I can't remember where he was driving to, is in the Vegas area. And uh, he was doing 65 miles per hour uh, at 720p video, and uh, the connection was staying fairly well from there. Uh, I'm not sure any other options uh, other than, a, and, than cell, if you're saying that the cell uh, is not available. But uh, I, I guess it's really in uh, what you have uh, for obstructions and what you have for, uh, for region of area that you're at. Yeah, I think that I think that the, uh, the the hard part you have is occlusions. So you can move 
with that dish, the hard part is that if you go by trees, if you go by buildings, if you go by a lot of other things, you're occluding whatever the satellite is that it's looking at. And so you're going to get, you're going to get a problem with that. What you want to look at probably is a pep link. So think about having, um, with no sole cell services, you're not going to have success. <laughs> you know, but if you have cell service and you get a pep link and you bond those, those together, so you have two or three cellular connections and then you have the Starlink and you prioritize the Starlink, but you have other connections that are working, it's not going to fix it where you have no cell service um, because you, with no cell service, you're going to have, it's not, I don't think it's the moving that's the problem. It's the occlusions that are going past you that become the problem that are cutting, cutting out. So I think that you, you want to look at how you can mix and match those connections to, to make that actually work. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana, says any tips for working with younger crew members who think they know all the tech but actually need to learn how to use it and to treat gear with gentle hands? You know, I, what, what we did t very, very often within PixelCore was to hire people with very little experience. Sometimes they had some experience. I mean, they went to school, but that didn't really mean anything. Um, you know, and so they, uh, so we, you know, usually I mean, we had people who are now working at pretty big companies that we like hired and they were selling shoes before we had them, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, like, and, and literally selling, selling shoes. And uh, what we found was that what was really important was a heterogeneous mix of, of people. So what you don't want is one person that knows something surrounded by lots of people that don't know anything. I mean, you can, that can help some. But what, we really, what really helped is having two or three people that were very knowledgeable inside of a group of 15 or 20 that were coming up to speed. And there were certain things that you'd repeat over and over again, and you'd explain things, and you'd talk through things, and you'd have lunches, and you'd talk through, you know, and, you, and you, this is where that... This is where having everybody in one place made a difference is we'd stop for a second and talk about something or we're constantly working out problems and then being willing to give them responsibility and then give them feedback as they were working through it and working through that and those handful of people. So, you know, we had two or three people that worked at the company that were extremely skilled that, that were surrounded by people who were able to work hard but weren't at the same level. And they came up very quickly up to that. You know, they, they can learn very fast, especially if you're putting them into projects. And those projects, we wanted to have them see production as often as we could. So we would, even if they're in the warehouse, we'd send them out as PAs. Then we'd send them out as, as camera operators. Then we'd send them out as graphics operators. We want to have them see all those things while they're working through those. And they see it. They have to do it. They get expert feedback. And then as far as being gentle, we used to call it being soft hands. And we just explained that the last you know, the last inch of everything they set down makes all the difference. You know, they can move it around like this, but when they set it down, if you could hear it, usually someone would come up to you and talk to you about the fact that they could hear you set down the, the, the item. Um, and we said, you, you know, we sold to people, you only do that with rental equipment. <laughs> like you don't do it with our equipment. And and because we own so much equipment that we, we just really, and it was hard. It's not just hard. The hardest, it, we, it turned out the people that were the hardest to, to train to use soft hands was uh, were people who did a lot of production with rental gear because they're just used to just slamming things in and moving things around. It's not their gear. Um, and so we, it was easier to teach the young folks to do it correctly than it was to teach guys who have been doing it for 30 years, you know, in a rough way. And because uh, then they would come back and say, well, this is the way I've done it all the blah, 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 you know, and, and that was, so that was, that was the harder, harder piece of it. But it does greatly increase the length of how long you look at it. And the way we explained it was, you know, you can do damage to something and it just doesn't, it's not that it stops working right then. It's just that if you keep on doing it, things inside will fall apart. 
and then we get surprised when something goes wrong instead of instead of knowing that we have what we have um the other thing that we talked about i mean we didn't we got upset with scuffs like if you scuff the front of one of our devices there'd be a conversation about how that happened because because what we explained to the to our um to a lot of people that worked for us was uh how our equipment looks creates confidence and everything about what we do is a confidence game <laughs> like you know the client being confident that we can pull off something that is probably impossible uh you know and uh, you know and we have to have they have to have confidence in us and the way we dress the way we act the way our equipment looks the way our desks look all of that creates confidence, you know, in in what we can do, and then we have to actually do it. But panicky uh, clients make things much harder for us to execute what we're trying to do. Uh, next question: Zach Jeffries in Spokane, Washington's up next. Recent project has the need to submix for a production truck, but also submix the multi-view. Any suggestions for a mobile setup to submix and at the same time submix for a multi-view? Yeah, a lot of times this is why we use routers, um, you know, so we'll route out the same things. To I'm assuming when you say mix, you're talking about sub-edit, um, you know, mix. Usually when you say mix, I'm going to say audio, <laughs> but but it's, uh, so I'm not sure if that's what you're, but when you say multi-view, it says video. So I'm not sure exactly where you're coming from on this on this specific question, but otherwise what we do is we have routers and we, we will send out, um, you know, a lot of times we patch all the cameras into the router and then we take those cameras and we match them out to edit one and then edit potentially another another edit to do that um, that sub edit um, and sometimes you're taking the outputs of the first switcher and moving back into the router but routers make all of this stuff possible is to be able to pass that through and you know i don't i probably don't do any show i i, I don't know how many shows i've done in the last decade without a 40 by 40 router like i just it's just like that's like minimum you know i'm gonna stick that in uh, and then you get you go up from there. Um, you, know, you can get these two eighty, you know, two eighty eight by two eighty eight. And you, routers are like bags. You will fill them with, you'll fill them with as as many inputs and outputs as you have. You never go, oh, I didn't only use half. You just use more, and you make a better show. Uh, next question. Ben uh, looks like Bedward in New Gloss with Wisconsin says using a Windows ten with a Behringer XR thirty two. I only see eight audio sends from the computer over USB to the mixer. How would I access all 32 channels of input to the mixer over USB and Windows? I think to do that, you'll need Dante. You know, you'll need something. Yeah, so Dante will get that out to, you know, you'll be able to access all those channels. The USB just doesn't doesn't support that. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. You might check and see if there's a newer version of the ASIO drivers for Behringer for Windows 10. Because there have been some bugs in the other ones, and it might be limiting you to eight channels. But I think it should be able to do 32. I don't know if it can. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I thought it was you, you create block patches, and there are block patches of eight channels. And then you create a second block patch. So the first block patch is one through eight, second block patch is nine through 16. And that would get it into the computer. I, but I haven't done that. So that was just a guess. Yeah, the um, and and... Mickey says, of course, that the that the that the card, the USB card that comes with it, should be able to do thirty two by thirty two. So, do do look, make sure that you have the most the latest firmware. Uh, next question. I'll try to get through this. Zach Phillips in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, says this: Will the ATEM HDMI camera control work with a HyperDeck in between? The new studio cameras HDMI outputs four K, unlike the Pocket, and he has a thumbs down emoji. For so, camera into HyperDeck, record four K. 
HDMI out continuing to the ATEM. Camera controls coming down, back down the chain, but then he leaves it kind of hanging there. I don't think so. I don't think that'll work. <laughs> so I, I don't think that you, you, you'll be able to do that. I think that, again, to get back to the conversation that we had about the router, what you'd want to do is convert the HDMI to SDI, you know, to do that. Um, and then, but you're going to have to have something that's passing both directions there. And the, the hyperdecks are not designed for that. So you're not going to be able to to run them, loop them through. And typically in a, in a production, once we start using those hyperdecks, we don't think about, we don't, we think about, uh, not looping through things, you know, like, like that's a, when you start using hyperdex, you're going to start thinking about SDI. You're going to start thinking about, you know, um, a router distributing the same signal to multiple outputs, those types of things. And I think that we're, you know, and, and again, all of this is really complicated with SDI and HDMI as we start to, I think that as we go through the next couple of years, we're probably going to see 2110 startup. And as 2110 starts to 2110 is kind of the adult version of NDI. And, um, and so as 2110 kind of lights up across the system, you're not going to have to deal with as many of these things as, as you are now because you'll have, uh, you'll, you'll just put an Ethernet in and make it, make it work. So, so it'll be, um, that's probably not, not too far away. Uh, next question. Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington. Mimo Live is quite a bit different than most mixing software. Which, edu which educational materials do you recommend that really goes through the functionality and best practices? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, um, Zach, you're right. It is different. Um, most video switching softwares use a, a bus metaphor. Um, some use, uh, like for example, OBS, which I use in, in conjunction with my ATEM, uh, use a scene metaphor. And the best way of thinking about Mimo Live is it's kind of like Photoshop for video. You have a stack of layers that you can turn on and off and reposition left or right. Um, I know specifically you're asking about training. Um, there's a, uh, um, they've put a lot of training material on their website. And if you haven't been through that, I would do that. But Mimo Live is very oh, unique means one of a kind. Mimo Live is unique for sure. Um, but it's, it's important to kind of classify it properly. It's sort of like layers for video. Uh, I will say this from my own uh, use of it a couple of years ago, um, learn how to use the layer sets because you can trigger those with a keyboard shortcut. Once you can trigger them with a keyboard shortcut, you can map that to a stream deck. Just to Bill. I was also noting that the developer of Mimo Live, Oliver Breidenbach, is a kind of a friend of the show. He's been around for a long time, and you will occasionally see him as part of the panel, or maybe he will come in and do a demo. So if you have more questions, the next time you see him, keep an eye on the listing of what shows are coming up. And if you see either Oliver Breidenbach or Mimo Live as a topic in the show, you might be able to ask your questions directly to the developer. That's amazing. Yeah, and a couple things there. One is that the best way to think about a lot of these things also is to, when you're having trouble with something, open up notes. I keep notes open a lot, but open up notes and type into it like questions about things and go, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I can't do this. You will forget most of those while you're working. You'll go, oh, I don't understand it. And then you find some solution and you keep moving and you forget to write them down. And then you hit, you keep on hitting that, that, that hook <laughs> over and over and over again. What I do is I, and I've been doing this for probably 30 years now, is I write them down like while I'm working. This is where the RFIs came from was because I write things down that I don't understand while I'm doing it. Like I don't understand this, I don't understand this, I don't understand this. I don't try to figure it out right then. 
I just make it a list. When I'm having lunch, <laughs> I sit around and I Google things. And when I don't, I reach out, when I don't find it quickly, I then reach out to somebody and ask. But the best thing is if you, and this is the great thing for asking questions for office hours in general. The reason office hours is so question oriented is because that's how I like to learn, <laughs> which is that I like to be working on things and then ask people relevant questions for what I'm doing right then contextually. And then I can remember it forever, but I can't do it if someone just hands me a bunch of information that I have to watch. And so, so the, um, the, uh, so what you want to do is, is with all of this stuff is to be writing things down as you go of, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. We are going to be doing more labs with memo. So it's a good thing to start writing them down now where Oliver and I, and a couple other people, because I'm using memo a lot more every day. And so I, uh, I'm using it once a week for the, the Michael Krasny show and I'm doing it do, using other things, you know, as we, as we put it together and that's kind of become something and I still don't understand all of it. So you'll see labs where Oliver and I sit around for in the, in the coming weeks, sit around for an hour and I ask him questions like, how do I do this? <laughs> What's the best way to do this? Uh, same thing that we're talking about here, but we're hoping that people like you, Zach, come in and ask questions as well. And we are working with Oliver to see if we can't get another, in the early days of office hours, we, uh, we did a 90 day, version of, of memo so that we could all learn together. So you'll start, we'll probably start with these labs, but then we'll um, pick up speed by, I think, have getting everybody 30 days or 90 days with memo so we can all kind of learn it together. I find it much more powerful to learn it as a group than learn it by ourselves. Uh, next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, back again. What do you, what do we all think of the new Blackmagic Design TV Studio HD8 ISO pricing? I was looking at some reviews and some are criticizing it, calling it overpriced for the amount of inputs and outputs. Go ahead, John. I don't think it's overpriced. It's three grand. <clears throat> Just those surfaces. I don't know how much those one ME and two ME panels, but they cost about the same price as this entire switcher, don't they, Alex? It's it's a little less, but not much. You know, it, it's about the same price, and so it, it, that's what's creating the cost. You know, is the is the interface? Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Blackmagic's design, they had these two uh, just control panels for three thousand and six thousand dollars for a single ME and a and a two ME. And uh, that doesn't give you all the I.O. And the new panel, the new one, is has the uh, OLED scribble strips on them so you can label each input and output uh, dynamically. That cost a lot of money to put into that interface. And to combine that with the entire switcher interface in one package, I think it's actually reasonably priced. Yeah, measuring it by the the by measuring by the I.O. is, is I don't think, a, a great way to approach that. When, but it, it often... I will admit, uh, when people review things and they do things that to me are obviously wrong, it, it taints my view of all of their reviews, <laughs> you know, cause that's a, you know, to say that this is going to be a certain price if they're not paying attention to how much a panel costs or they don't have an understanding of that. I, then I just go, well, I don't know if these guys know what they're talking about. Go ahead, Alex. I was just going to say, it's actually wasn't, I should have clarified. It wasn't the YouTube reviewers. It was all those people on the internet leaving comments. Oh, so it's okay, overpriced. It doesn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. It's Yahoo's. Um, yeah, next question. Douglas Carmichael says, Alex, you mentioned how equipment looks creates confidence in you. What are some tips in cleaning up a messy desk full of cables? Uh, well, a messy desk at home, I don't really do very much work because I'm constantly changing it. Other than that, uh, we definitely pay a lot of attention. One of the things that, like what we just talked about with that switcher, is we tend not to use that kind of switcher because it creates lots of cables on the desk, which are hard to deal with. Um, we want the cables to be off somewhere else. 
Um, and then we try to take them straight off of the, oftentimes on a desk, we try to take them straight off of things. We want just control surfaces on the desk with as few things going into them as possible. Um, a lot of times when we have, uh, you know, mixers and so on and so forth, they're, they're sitting there, but we want, we, we don't like to have a lot of things wandering around the desk when we can avoid it. Uh, obviously, when you're doing a setup for a, a given day, there's only so much you can do. You know, and you just have to, but cable management and how we process that, a lot of times when we have a day or two of setup, we kind of, we do, there's a lot of discussion about where all those cables are going to go. We use a lot of, um, uh, I can't think of the, the wraps that you put on them. So they're basically like, I've got 20 cables to go here and I, and I put them on a loom. It's called looms. And we put looms on them to keep them all together all the way over. The nice thing about looms instead of tape is that they uh, that it's easy to get in and out of them without them getting all sticky. So you you put them into the looms, and then you can go and unwrap them and pull you know pull them out or usually add. We don't usually pull once cables go in on a build. Um, they usually they're there until the end of the show. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, there's a whole universe of cabling accessories. I, I I wish I was better at it. I have all the best intentions, and I have a whole box full of different kinds of things that go from little plastic spiral wraps for a few cables to Velcro attached things. I have things that stick on the wall and open up. You can lay cables inside of and close back up. Uh, and I do a pretty good job for about the first uh half of the day that I'm working on it. And then you get to what Alex is talking about, which is, oh, this is going to have to come out and change and back and forth. So I still end up with a small pool of cables under my desk that are nowhere near as well-dressed as I can. This is just, it, it, you know, you have to discern, determine what level of, of obsession do you have about it. There are whole YouTube channels that are designed around people who are just fanatic and the big facilities guys, who uh, men and women who wire these unbelievably complex things beautifully, so that the back of every server rack has every single cable perfectly positioned and perfectly mm -hmm. secured. People just those are fabulous. Yeah, and it was similar to the question that was yesterday about power cables. What makes a lot of this less messy is really good drawings <laughs> so the better you draw out and what one of the things that happens for a lot of our stuff is on site we'll have someone like kevin hansen or someone else doing as builds. so basically what that means is when i move something in the show he changes the drawing like i tell him i'm moving this to this to this you know over and he moves it in the drawing as we're working and so it's constantly so when we get to the end of the show we have a drawing of what this show looked like and how we did it when we have to come back to it 12 months later, because this is a once a year show, we have an as built. We also take tons of photos of our, of our layouts when we take, and we, then we have lots of discussions about what worked and didn't work. And we, and we do all those other things. And so that when we design it for the next show, even if it's a year apart, um, that's why those RFIs that we write are so important of, of, of what, what's working and not working um, in the, in real time, writing those down so that we know what those are. Um, the as built drawings, as well as the, those bits, in, uh, as well as the pictures, uh, allow us to have a better idea of how to not have cables going everywhere, not adding a lot of new things at the end. Uh, next question. Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington, calling back to the Starlink connection. Is SRT the best solution for this high latency connection, or is there a better transport for the feed in a high dropout environment? Uh, I would. I think the best would be Zixi. I, if, if I were doing what you're doing, uh, I would probably use a elemental link. I would just take an elemental link, and I'd, I'd attach it to your satellite dish, and then I would um, be driving along, send it to AWS, and then push it out. I think that that would have the highest level. SRT is close, probably 
85% as effective as, as the link. Uh, so it's, it's pretty close, but it's not, not going to be the same. Uh, next question. Harshi Trivedi, Daytona Beach. Has anybody heard of the offerings from Sennheiser? Could it be something you send out to your talent? And he's got a couple specific uh, Sennheiser USB microphones uh, and similar. Yeah, go ahead, Javier. Uh, yeah, the Sennheiser Profile Podcasting Mic, uh, I think it's a good option. I really like the Sennheiser as a brand. I think have great quality. Uh, it's like $129, uh, and it, uh, they have like a $199 uh, package that has like the cable, uh, the boom arm, and the microphone, and I think that's a great deal. It has controls at the front, like they have a, a physical mute. It has a mixed volume from the input and the output. It has a gain control, and it has, a, I think, an output level. So I think for uh, less experienced people, it's a great option to have a, a good sounding mic with a lot of control all packaged in a little bundle. And and it's a great brand, so I'll think it's a good idea. Go ahead, Jeffrey. In sending at home kits, I, I don't think it's a great idea. It's a it's a condenser mic to begin with, and I'm a big fan of uh, sending out dynamic microphones like this one right here. That way, if there's a lot of room noise, a lot of bounce, then it's going to get a lot of off-access rejection with this with this type of microphone. Um, too many dials on that uh, on that Sennheiser. The center dial, is, and I've got a microphone downstairs. I'll, I'll grab it for a second hour for the podcasting. They're starting to add this uh, pass-through option where you can hook up a computer that goes into the microphone, and then you can control the difference of the volume between your microphone and the music that's coming in through a game or something like that through that dial. And that's what that uh, Sennheiser has right there. And it, it probably wouldn't even be used for, uh, depending on what you're doing. But it will, uh, it'll definitely, if they start playing with any of those dials, then you run into to new problems that uh, in mid-show you, you just don't want to deal with. So, And then finally, uh, having a, a boom arm is nice, but it's a boom arm that attaches to the table. I would most likely send them something that comes, you know, like a regular stand and then have the microphone on a boom arm that way. Yeah, the... the um if the talent's going to use it over and over and over again, I'd be more likely to say it's a good idea. Um, you know, sending something that they can play with. If they're going to use it once for a show, you're right that the dials become a problem. You know, like the dials are, are a real challenge when someone's going to do a, um, I'm only, the first time I'm going to see this mic is the only time I'm going to use it. Because to your point, they tend to fiddle with them. The number one problem we have with remotes, we can talk about this in the podcasting section, is we, the blue microphone is kind of the devil like, you know, for us because there's too many settings and people turn them to the wrong thing and they talk into the wrong angle and they, you know, but we've kind of learned to hate that mic, you know, and it, when it's used properly, it sounds great. It's just not used properly very often. And so that's the, you know, that's the, the real challenge that we have. And so lots of settings um, can be difficult there. It looks like a really interesting mic. I'm, my, my pocket is getting a little warm that it might be time to test more mics again, but I just... So much. I, I have to get better at sending them back. Now that I know that I can, if I buy them from Amazon, I can take them back to Whole Foods. I might uh, might go back into getting more mics. <laughs> we'll just use them for a week and then I'll send them back if they don't work. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. What's the best way to improve how Siri translates my voice-to-text transcriptions? Each time I say content, Siri writes contact. This started after the last update. I miss the old series, she says. Go, Jeffrey, real quick. I had a friend that uh, had, uh, every time they used Siri, they said they could never get it correct. But they were they were using their phone and they were like holding it 
super weird where it, they were covering the microphone. So my suggestion is to make sure that the microphones are clear of any obstruction, uh, maybe clean it off with a, with a rag or something like that. If you're using something like a HomePod, get it in a spot. The, the other problem I always have is uh, the HomePod doesn't respond and then the phone responds. So I say, play music, and all of a sudden it's coming from my phone, not my HomePod. So get that microphone in a good area that's direct to your voice. Javier. Yeah, super quickly. Uh, I remember that Siri, well, in iOS, you can have like this text transforms to this other. So uh, like a uh, substitution, I think it's called uh, in the settings. So every time I get Siri, like getting something wrong, I get that word, I put it in a substitution and I put the real world. So that will help you a lot because it, it eventually going to be substituting every time it misses, uh, mistranslates it or mistypes it to that other word. It. I've just learned, I have to learn how to talk to to a lot of these things in a way that I just look at what it takes for them to say it. So you'll see sometimes I'll sit there and just say the word over and over again, just watching what it pops out. Now, the other thing to remember is that it's contextual. So it's looking at the other words before and after it. So sometimes you see it rewrite it. So that's the other thing you have to kind of be careful of. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael says, when Disney had to implement an MCR at home solution, one comment was that 100 megabits per second plus video streams would choke typical home internet connections. In an age where cable companies are offering 300 megabits per second as a basic tier, is this still true? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, because it depends on the interface equipment that you have. Your cable company may not be providing you with a router or a switch, and a lot of those routers and switches, if they're older, are 100 megabits total. So they're not all gigabit switches. So you'd be best to replace all your switches, routers, and Wi-Fi with gigabit compatible switches and routers. So that could be a problem choking it at 100 megabits. But your typical upstream is only about 5 to 10 megabits. And uh, downstream is, is even less. So, Yeah, I, I think that the real challenge is that, that you... If on those basic tiers, they're, they're not guaranteed. So they say you might get that. Like I have a one gig connection theoretically from Comcast. And often days I see no more than 40 or 50 megs a second, you know? And so that, so that's the, that's the real challenge is that they're, they're not really, if you're in a consumer connection, if you have a business connection, you, you tend to get what you paid for, um, but you pay a lot more for it. Um, than, than it and, and if you're doing MCR at home, that's probably okay. The real question is whether whatever you're doing at home, does it need to be the full resolution? So a lot of times what we see is people using a, a lower, you know, a lower resolution or a more compressed resolution for them to make the decisions they need to make. Um, when they need to actually have low, very low latency, I'm actually doing an MCR remotely, then you start talking about dark fiber or dedicated fiber. So you, most of these companies can put that in and there's companies called the Switch, like the Switch, that can do those things. Um, and they'll put, I've seen them put the Switch into people's houses. <laughs> like so, so it, it can, and now you have a, you know, 1.5 or a 1 gig connection in and out, guaranteed, you know, it works. And and that's when you can really start to build up on that. And it seems like it would cost a lot of money. It might cost you three or $4,000 a month for that that connection. Um, but if you're doing a lot of shows, it's not a big deal. So, so, but you can send somebody at that point, you can start sending real data back and forth and, and make it happen. So doing it at home is possible. It's just about how much you're willing to pay per month to get it. Uh, next question. Tom McKinnon at Simons Island says, has anyone doing, has anyone doing cloud-based productions used any of the a la carte cloud computing services like Vagon or Shadow? Well, <laughs> Shadow has two W's at the end. Yeah, I, I 
haven't seen anybody using either one of those services so far. Uh, so we'll keep we'll keep talking about it. Um, you know, cloud services is something we're going to talk a lot more about as we go through the year. Next question. Next one comes from Mike Potter in Hanover, Germany. After updating the firmware in my Insta360 link, it does not zoom out anymore in Zoom when switching to another cam and back. That's great. Or is it caused by a Zoom update, which I also have installed? I'm going to bet that it's the Insta360 link update that says don't don't listen, don't change when it makes that first request. So it's probably Insta360. And I'm glad that you mentioned that there's an update. Do some firmware updates to all my cameras. All right, next question. Zach Phillips, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Talking wiring diagrams, are you using H2R gear for that or OmniGraffle? I find that all these software tools end up with me fiddling and I end up back on paper, but that does not scale well. You know, I, I've i been playing with H2R graphics and I think that for many people, H2R graphics is plenty. Like it will do all the things that you need it to do. I will admit that I've been building wiring diagrams for 15 years on OmniGraffle. It'd be very hard for me to switch to anything else just because I'm used to it. And it it's harder to use than H2R graphics, but it is more flexible. Like I, I have lots of layers. And so what, what'll happen for me is I've got a video layer and an audio layer and a power layer, you know, and a, and a, you know, a communications layer. And so there's a bunch of layers that I have there. And then I have very complex connections between all of those layers. And so that becomes one of those things that it's, I don't think I can do that in HR graphics that way. And HR graphics, I think, is built for someone different than what we're doing. The next level up from what I'm doing is AutoCAD. You know, so the, what most things are put together in, um, Marty Brennis, who has been on here occasionally, what he does are big wiring diagrams with thousands and thousands of connections across an entire facility where everything has to be labeled and everything has to be accounted for. And when you go over to his desk, he's upstairs from our office, uh, it's all AutoCAD. <laughs> so, so, so that's the, I mean, that's, that's what you kind of build that scale in. And now we're going to jump into our second hour and talk about podcasts. Um, so if, if, the, if anyone here wants to add their, their two cents to it before we jump into questions, uh, go ahead and raise your hand uh, and I'll give a little introduction. So we've been, I've been working on podcasts either as a guest or as someone who's creating them uh, since before they were called podcasts. They were just like RSS feeds with, you know, like we didn't know what to call them. And then Adam Curry um, was kind enough to, to give them a name. And then we all kind of took it. We tried, Leo tried not connected to the, to the uh, pod and tried to call it netcast, but that didn't really go anywhere. And so, um, so we have these uh, podcasts and, and uh, we're going to talk probably a little less about the RSS nature of those. It's probably a whole second hour and more about the production of them. How do we create this content? Um, and, and there's a couple different ways that we think about creating that content. Um, you know, there is, uh, of course, you can be, uh, you can be connecting it where everyone's talking in the same place. So some of the podcasts that we do, we have everybody around a table and we all have mics um, and we re record those together and then put them out. We then have regulars, people who are always going to be on the same podcast. So if you look at MacBreak, generally all, there's four of us that are almost on, on almost every single podcast. Um, and so the, we're regulars and we pop in and there's an advantage to that is that our kit is kind of set up for it. You know, we understand how it's going to work. We know how, how to put it together. Then you have podcasts where you are bringing people in that are only going to be there for that one podcast, either a round table or an interview or other, other types of those types of podcasts. And so those are discussions there. And then finally, 
you really have, you know, there's a question, you know, there, I think probably some questions about this. Most of the podcasts that are out there, most of the ones that, that, that are done repeated are generally discussions. They're not uh, written. And the reason you don't write them is because you're not, ma- usually when you get started, you're not making any money doing them. <laughs> so sitting down and writing an hour of content is a hundred times harder than sitting down and talking to someone else about a subject. And so, so usually most podcasts you see are going to be discussions because they're cheaper to produce, um, you know, than, than sitting there and trying to write something that people actually want to listen to. I mean, you can just write a book at that point, <laughs> you know, an audio that, you know, the, a one hour podcast is, is one fifth of your way down to just writing a book if you're going to write it all out and read it all out. So, you know, and most podcasts are tend to want to be long form. Uh, we usually, I think there's going to be some, I think there were some questions about short, short ones, uh, you know, what people tend to like, you know, it depends on what you're looking at. The reason video oftentimes wants to be short is because you're monotasking. You're not doing anything else. You're watching the video and you're and you're listening to it, but it's you can't do a lot of other things and really get the full value. Whereas podcasts, you're oftentimes doing them in the, uh, you're doing them separate, you know, while you're doing something else. I mean, that is the number one way people listen to podcasts. You always have to remember that people are doing something else while, while they're doing it. And that's 90% of your audience. They're driving they're doing yard work, they're doing the dishes, they're wa- they're just taking a walk, but they're rarely um, like sitting there listening to your podcast. And so, you know, that's one of the other things to kind of keep in, in mind um, in there. So as a result, of course, even if we're doing video podcasts, your audio becomes super important, you know, and, and that is the thing that probably most people doing podcasts fail at is not taking care of their audio. And you, you know, you can't always have it perfect, especially if you're bringing in random people every time. Uh, but you want to really prioritize that in my opinion. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. So I've been in podcasting. I started podcasting around 2005. Uh, I was working with a couple other people. I've, uh, and, and of course, uh, with the group over at Tech Podcast, that was Todd Cochran's uh, 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 brainchild. Uh, so I've been, uh, I, I remember the days that, you know, I'm going to sound like the old curmudgeon. You have it better than we did back then. Because uh, it, it was really true. Because I remember my first podcast being, dynamic microphone into a Yamaha eight channel mixer. Uh, uh, audio was analog into the computer, which was a uh, Pentium three, I said three or four or something like that back then. And then of course you were recorded. I recorded all my podcasts on, on acid, uh, Sony acid, uh, which was, uh, is, is great software for music recording. And if you, utilized it right it would be great for podcasting because you could create intros and outros and then have that and you just basically put the smack the uh, middle content in there put it all together and dress it up and go out the biggest thing was the uh, cdn that you would have to send it to back then because there wasn't uh there wasn't anything like cash flies or 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 youtubes or anything like that that you could upload to so we were we were using uh like bear share and, and napster uh alternatives to send out audio files to hopefully have people pick it up and and file share so it would save us because it, it would cost a lot to send a 64 kilobit per second audio file 15 minutes uh to some to somebody like alex and the rest of the panel uh, so nowadays it's, it's a lot better because you have a whole bunch of different CDNs to choose from. You can choose Spotify, Apple podcasts or, or anything like that. And, uh, and of course you don't even need to have the RSS, which I won't get into, but, uh, you don't even need to have the RSS to create a podcast. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, John. 
So <clears throat> remember back in the day when all of the amateurs were in the top 10 of iTunes. It was Ask a Ninja, which is a friend of Alex, I think. Yeah. Tiki, the Tiki Room, Soccer Girl. Remember, what year was were all those amateurs in the top 10 of the of iTunes? I think I would have said, I think it's probably 2006, 2005, 2006 is when they really, there was like this explosion of, and, you know, Ask a Ninja, uh, you know, Kent and Doug were, uh, they were doing it on the web before podcasts were out there. You know, so they were, there wasn't even a podcast. They were doing it on webcast. So they were 2000, I think three or four. And I remember when we went to the first podcasting camp or whatever it was, the, uh, there was a podcasting convention down in, in, uh, Southern California. I can't remember where, <laughs> like Orlando or something like, not Orlando, um, Orange County, I think, or, or something like that. Uh, like kent was like a superstar <laughs> like you know because it was asking ninja like and he just was like and kent's a big guy i think he's like six four six five and so it was a big really big guy with you know and um and uh so it was it was really a lot of fun um and we should bring him on we should bring kent on i i'm sure he'd jump on um to to talk to us about that so um anyway but um uh yeah it was uh, i think that you know, there's Tiki Bar, the Tiki Bar, and I forgot about that until you said it. Uh, yeah, and and I think it had a lot of what YouTube has now, which is this kind of open-ended, creative, I want to create a show, I don't have to, there's so much that gets locked up. I What I notice now is how much Hollywood is connected to formulas, right? There's a formula, we're going to make a show. We're going to have this, we're going to have this, we're going to have this, we're going to shake in a little bit of this. And every show is that way because that's how you mass produce things that make money. And, but the problem is, is it gets very, like, I can now, see, unfortunately, I, I, I watch any show and I can just see the, I can see the formula. And like, it's like, I, you know, after a while, it's, you know, you, you, you know, you, you learn to read the code and after a while it's blonde, blonde, brunette, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like matrix. And you just see, like, I see what they're doing here. They're setting this up, they're doing this thing and they're, they're making this work and it kind of ruins the experience. And what I love about YouTube is that, um, you know, and, and podcasts is that, people are experimenting. They're not, they're going all over the place and, and they're coming up with new ways to communicate. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. I think it's interesting. There's, um, we're, we're dancing around the definition of a podcast and perhaps we should talk about that just for a, a moment. Um, some of us are old enough to think of a podcast to me. I'll say this. To me, a podcast is probably an audio-only show, and a lot of people don't don't constrain to that now. A lot of people are looking at a um, a YouTube series and calling it a podcast. I have a hard time with that; it doesn't feel right to me. I don't know why. Maybe it it's just you know being older. Um, but are we are we using this word universally for any? low budget potentially low budget created non yeah i think it's good i think it's good to back up i think that you know i think of podcasts generally as a serialized show that is by, by that meaning it's coming out at some certain pace interval every day every week every month um whatever that pace is uh and so it there's an interval to it you have to have it you have to figure out what that arc is as you start to as you start to build that, um, and and then you have to be able to execute that, and and that is a 
a thing, you know, like trying to execute something every week for a long period of time. It's e the first 20 are usually pretty easy. And then after that, like coming up with that. So you really have to think about your model before you get started um, as you go. And I really want to move into tech soon <laughs> as we talk about Sorry. the podcast as far as technical stuff. But you are right that, that these are these are things that are happening, um, uh, you know, generally as a serial um, as you as you put those together. So, um, so we including you, a YouTube series under the moniker podcast. Sure, I mean okay. you know like, but but I would say you know well, I, I if think that's what you want to do, Alex. And it's your show. You get whatever you want. <laughs> I, yeah, and 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 I think that you know, and and all of them. And we think about low budget, but like if you listen to the the one that is, you know, the, there's a couple podcasts to listen to if you really want to see how far you can take it. And I think you know, this American Life is probably one of the ones that. If you want to hear like what production can be like, it's not a discussion. Um, but this American Life is the is the one that you know. There's they've got effects and interviews and process, and it takes them. I, I think it's like three to six months per episode to to produce that they have people working in parallel, and so it can be a much bigger thing. But they the nice thing about podcasts is it can be very inexpensive. Just you know, three interesting people or four interesting people can be a relatively inexpensive thing to execute. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I will say to Chris, I actually wanted to talk about sort of the, the history, how much more difficult it is now to do, like if you're going to get into video, how much more difficult it is over recording audio podcasts. But to Chris's point, uh, by definition, technically a podcast, and I consider that audio only, is something where the application automatically pulls down the episode. The so YouTube, YouTube doesn't do that, right? With So... I don't like to call a YouTube show a podcast, but I did audio for about 10 years or so. And the one thing that this has been fascinating because technology has changed so much over the years is that um, the moment I started putting a camera in here, multiple cameras, a camera switcher, dealing with remote guests, trying to work out how you get isolated audio and mix minuses for video, mix minuses for audio was so much more complicated and it has gotten easier over the years, but that was one of the things that was a big hurdle for me. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, one of the things that's been, uh, that we're seeing happen through this is is the the Zoom ISO stuff is going to continue to make a bigger and bigger difference for what our production pipelines. And so, you know, that's what I'm doing right now is when I, you'll see me experimenting sometimes in the back end, especially over the weekends, where we're grabbing all these, all you know, Zoom ISO allows us, like the show that we're doing here, we're grabbing all those ISO video and ISO audio and so on and so forth out of the, out of the system. This removes all the need to deal with all that mix minus between the panelists. And now you're just grabbing their feeds um, directly out of it. And, you know, Zoom has already announced that they're going to allow you to do what's called double ending. And double ending, I think, is going to be a big deal when we, um, when it actually, whenever it comes out, uh, it's going to be a big deal because it means that we can record um, the video and audio on the on the side on the remote side. So, so that's something you want to keep your eye out for if you're wondering what double ending is. It's Recording on both ends, double ending is recording on both ends. And this has been around radio for a long time, <laughs> you know, 50, 100 years. Like, I don't know how long, but a long time. As long as they've had recorders, they've said, hey, why don't we just record both ends so that if something goes wrong in the middle, we can make this work. Um, and it, it's allowed people to do things like use phoners. So you'll have a phone call between two people and then record them locally and then re-edit that back together. So those are all things that have been used for a very, very long time to build podcasts. And that's but nowadays with Zoom and with Skype and with a lot of these other bits and pieces, we're able to um, able to put those, you know, put that together and re-edit it. It is something you have to think about because if someone has a bad connection, it really, you know, causes 
issues. And again, we're and we're looking at as we look at kits for, for instance, the podcast that we work on with Michael Krasny. Um, I am looking at investing in. We right now we send out mics, uh, we send out MB sevens to people, and that's pretty much all we send out. Um, to people, we can, the video needs to be relatively, we try to make it relatively good, but we're really worried about the audio. And I'm very close to including with that a uh, a Mac mini that we can remote into so that we can control it, record it, do all the things locally that we need to do to get that, to get that footage out. Um, because we don't, then we don't have to deal with the connection. We can also deal with any settings that need to be changed anything else that needs to be worked out. Um, we're kind of designing this little kit right now that we'll, that, that I think we'll, we'll, we'll show you as we get a little closer to the design. It's going to be an open design. I'll show everybody how we do it. It's not, you know, people can build their own, but, um, the, but we, we're working on one that should be pretty cool. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. All right, so here's the very quick history of podcasting. 2000, very quick. Two, very quick. Very quick. <laughs> 2001, Dave Weiner puts in to RSS a special container that will allow audio, video, uh, PDFs and e-publications to work into an RSS feed. In 2004, Adam Curry worked with Dave Weiner to kind of make the adjustment for the first podcast, technical podcast, to go in there. So technically, and by the way, Apple has nothing to do with this at this point. So technically, any audio, video, EPUB, or PDF could be labeled a podcast at that point. Uh, that brings us to uh, that brings us to where we are right now because there's a lot of debate whether YouTube is a podcast because it doesn't have an RSS feed. I don't really care myself, but you know that's a political debate we don't want to talk about here. Let's jump into the questions. Our first question comes from Andy Kokendorfer in VR Florida, and he says, "What tools do you recommend for recording remote guests in high quality, and which mic would you send out to guests?" Thanks, Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, for mics, I would go with an MV7, which is a very popular choice here. I would send that out to people. And as far as tools, I mean, there's hardware and software solutions. Hardware, I, I like to record guests uh, locally on my Tascam uh, mixer here. You can do that on a Rodecaster console. On a Mac, you can use Audio Hijack, which is very lightweight. You don't necessarily need to use heavyweight applications like Logic or Pro Tools, but you can, and you can use software applications like Loopback and Audio Hijack to route stuff into your digital audio workstation if you want to actually go about it that way. Javier? Uh, but sometimes before I send uh, any like technical things, I like to spend uh, an hour or something like uh, talking to people to where are they going to record or where they should do it. Because sometimes people are like, I'm going to do it here in my office or here in my house because I like this space, but they are like facing a window with message their audio or, or having their backs against the window with message their video. So sometimes trying to fix things in the physical world before getting to the electronic world uh, is a, a lot better, especially like Alec was saying earlier, when you're having like a continuous thing that uh, week over week, you can uh, spend some time like trying to help them. And then you can choose a mic because like Jeffrey was saying, sometimes a dynamic mic would be better. Sometimes a condenser would be better. Uh, but I, I try to spend some time like trying to solve the physical part of the of the equation before throwing gear into it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the MV7, it depends on how much money you want to spend and whether you want to you know spend money shipping a mic and the whole setup to them and back. The one thing we looked at and tried out uh, recently was these piles. Uh, it's not a large diaphragm condenser, but it looks like but it plays one on TV. 
Uh, it's about a medium size. It has the same uh, elements in it that the Behringer Bigfoot has. Only it only has a single element, cardioid. But it comes with a good shock mount, a good table stand, a good pop filter, and a case for forty bucks. And when they were on sale, they were twenty nine dollars. I think I got one for. So you could send that out to somebody and not even worry about shipping it back because it probably costs more to ship it back than it costs and let them keep it, and then use Zoom to record if you're going to use them coming, this is for remote people coming into a podcast, if you're going to use Zoom as your interface for that podcast so that you can hear them. Generally, people that want to use just their laptop mic or something, this will make enough of an improvement by moving the microphone closer to them, right, you know, a few inches from their mouth, um, and it'll give you a nice, uh, clean signal-to-noise ratio, and that condenser is certainly good enough. It's not as good as the Stellar X2 that Alex and I are <laughs> using, which is it's about uh, you know four times the price. But uh, yeah, it'll it'll get the job done, and I think for most people, it would it would make a great improvement over most anything people would have in their house at the current time. Yeah, it's funny how first impressions make a difference. I ordered the pile because we were talking about it, and and I the problem was is that I pu- pulled it out of the box, plugged it in, and got a huge buzz. Like it just immediately as I plugged it in, I got this ground loop that was like some kind of grounding problem. And what it took to fix it was to tighten the bottom up to, you know, it was something, it, it the bottom came out of the case loose. And I was like, oh, I, it wasn't very hard for me to figure it out. But I was like, no. <laughs> like, like I'm not going to send this it out to anybody. Metal, like, it is a metal case. It feels good, but but it, yeah, it, like you it, say, if it's an assembly problem, if they just didn't the, screw it on all the they, way, they didn't. But the problem was the, the first mic I bought was that, and I was like, the idea of trying to explain what I did in a second to someone who doesn't use mics was was like, uh, that's going to be hard to send out. Because when I look at a mic that's under $100, I'm not looking at how I'm going to use it. I'm looking at how I'm going to send it to somebody. And the things that scare me about mics are dials and um, and anything that would be hard for them to put together. Another one is like the Behringer Bigfoot. The problem with it is, is it, number one is it comes with the old USB. So if you miss it, finding those are now getting pretty hard. The other problem is, is that if you stand it up, it shears the USB. Like it, it literally, if you put the USB in and then turn it vertical, it bends the USB that it came with to 90 degrees. I have it around here somewhere. But, and I was, so that became the no, <laughs> you know, like so, so the you know, so that that's the that's the hard part is that it, you know these little design errors you have to think about. Like I'm sending this to someone who doesn't know anything about tech, and it has to be perfect, you know, for me to do that because otherwise we just can't get a show out. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So this was uh, when this came out. Uh, this was the godsend. It's that uh, if you don't want to pay for the MV7, this is the Audio Technica 2100, and podcasters ate this up because it had the XLR and a USB connection on there, so they could uh, hook it up to their mixer. They could hook it up to their computer. the The problem that Alex just said, the one problem that with this microphone is this guy right here. I hate microphones with switches on them. Because uh, that can be a single point of failure. Audio Technica now has the 2005. They started. This one was like forty dollars when they first brought it out. I think they jumped up to about eighty dollars, but they're still sub one hundred dollar microphones that do a really good job in getting audio. Go ahead, Alex. 
Yeah, if you don't have the time to do a double ender where you have both sides record their audio and video and then you would basically, uh, you would work it in, in post. Um, if One of the nice things about having a digital mixer is that, um, for example, like with me, I can live, I can EQ somebody's voice, I can apply noise suppression, I can EQ their voice. So if they're coming in on, say, the built-in mic on a laptop, which everyone, you know, hates but if that's your only option and you don't have the budget to send a kit at least with a digital mixer you can apply eq and that's one way around it yeah i mean one thing that is important is recording isos so you want to always find a way that you're going to be able to record the other side um, whether it's over zoom or whether it's over and one of the interesting things in a lot of times we make decisions at first you think well i'm always going to have original sound on for zoom and sometimes that does not make it better uh, it makes it harder for you to, um, you know, it, it, you don't get the quality. But if they have a good mic, we had a, a guest on a couple of weeks ago that had a good mic and they uh, and they had never turned, a, they didn't have it activated, original sound. <laughs> They'd never turned it on. And we were like, hey, why don't we give that a shot? Because we could tell that they had a good mic. And as soon as they did that, it sounded infinitely better. You know, and there's someone that does podcasts. And so so it was one of those things that you, you want to kind of push, you know, towards those things and know what they have on their end. Uh, I will say that, I try to, and, and I admit that I'm pretty specific, that I really think it's important that it's comfortable to listen to, and we do everything we can. We don't get every podcast right just because of a variety of technical issues, but but we do everything we can to make sure that it's a very listenable, like it's comfortable to listen to. It's all the same there. Things aren't too tinty. There's not a lot, you know, there's, and so for us, sending mics out became kind of just what we need to do um, to, to make that happen. I have to admit that we've tested lots and lots of mics and making decisions, a lot of it has to do with what is it? What do those mics sound like in an environment? This gets into the off-axis rejection issue. We can't control their environment, so how do we have something that has as much off-axis as possible that also has a USB input? I wish more mics. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that there's must be a patent somewhere that's stopping mics from putting uh, recording, uh, putting a micro SD card into them. There's one mic that does that out of the UK where you can put a micro SD card into the mic itself and record right on the mic. And I'm guessing that there's a there's a patent there somewhere that's keeping everybody else from doing it. Because like if you look at the new Rode mic, the Generation 5, which I think I'm going to get soon, the as a test, um, it is the, um, the I'm, I'm very interested in that one because it was 32-bit float out, which would be really useful for correction and so on and so forth. But what I really want is just to have it done in the mic you know, so that it can be recorded there. But because nothing else has it other than like one mic, I'm assuming that there's some legal reason that they can't do it. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. YouTube Shorts boosts discoverability and subscriptions. Any value in doing an audio post in doing audio podcast shorts, a daily two to four minute episode, or is it better to push those to social media and keep the podcast longer? What content would you listen to in audio shorts? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I don't know if audio only shorts is a thing that's supported. I've never tested that. Maybe just some, that's something Jeffrey can speak to. But in my experience. Uh, 
doubling down on shorts uh, on this type of vertical content in the last six months has been incredibly useful. I mean, I have one video that uh, I was working on for a client and it went viral. Uh, you know, we had in the last five days, we had almost 300 subscribers to the YouTube channel just coming from that video alone, over 200 comments, lots of engagement. So I, I definitely see the benefits. I was very hesitant. So if you haven't actually tried shorts, I think it's incredibly valuable and you should absolutely do it. But shorts are one minute, right? I mean, the technically shorts are a minute long, right? So yeah, 60 seconds. Yeah, which is great. Um, go ahead, Jeffrey. Actually, 59.959. Yeah. Otherwise, if you hit one minute, it'll turn it into a regular YouTube video. Uh, with shorts, uh, yeah, as Alexander, it's it's more visual than audio. So podcasters, the the early podcasters that utilize YouTube would do the uh, the whole waveform thing uh, for video, and then they'd make sure that they would transcribe it and put it in there. Now, there's a lot of programs nowadays that putting a transcription into a, into a one-minute video is not that difficult to do, but I would highly do it because uh, recommend it because a lot of people watch shorts rather than listen to it. As for the social media aspect of it, not all social media channels will accept a short. Like, for instance, uh, Reddit or Tumblr, if you try to put a short into your into your feed, it's going to say, we don't recognize that format, and then you're, you can't do anything past that. So if that's what you're looking for, then that you might want to wait till they fix those problems. Good, Alexander. Yeah, one thing I've, I discovered the hard way with Instagram Reels. Now, you can do longer videos on Instagram, but I found that uh, if you... If you upload anything that's longer than 90 seconds, you cannot boost that post. You cannot advertise on it, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think they're trying to keep people from <laughs> from from spamming everybody with long emails. I know that my my usage of TikTok dropped like 90% when they went over a minute. Like I just was like, oh, because it's so hard for an amateur to maintain production quality for a long period of time if they're trying to do anything that's in a format that needs to be ten dense. Um, I think that things that I, I think I'd be interested in, and we've been talking about it here internally, is like news. I I would love to have a, a podcast that I listened to that was four or five minutes long that told me all the new audio and video stuff that was released yesterday. You know, like there's a, you know, there's a, or new announcements from this or things that you might be interested in and so on and so forth. The only thing I have to figure out is, for me, I feel like you want to have a link to that thing, you know, so, so I've been thinking about like, what would that look like um, to make that work? And so um, those are the kind of things that, that I'm still, you know, pondering. Next question. Next question comes to us from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm considering DistroKid. It claims to offer copyright protection for your own songs, covering covers of previous artist songs, the licensing of that, and as does and does Apple Music, Spotify, and so forth and so forth do that? Thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's the it's getting covered for whatever you're. I mean, getting released to do that song is the tricky part, right? So that's the. I mean, it's. I would worry if I'm doing covers, I would probably worry less about the copyright of your own work as much as I would worry about the getting released for the other other people's work. So if they're doing that, it definitely makes it easier. You you know, it's a, it's a it is a lower license and lots of people do covers and there's a payment to make and it's not very big to do a cover of somebody else. So um you it is it will it is a little bit it takes some expertise. So if that's what they're doing as far as covering your own thing with a copyright, maybe if you're getting enough people, but you really have to decide how many people are 
are listening to it. You know, that's always the challenge there. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, a little complex because you've got all sorts of different kinds of rights and you're dealing internationally. I know you're in New Zealand, Peter, but there's U.S. copyright laws. There's other countries that have copyright laws. Derivative works are generally dealt with, but you've got also lots of different lights. Uh, rights, composer rights, performance rights, synchronization rights. This is a thicket to walk down. Hopefully it makes it easy, though, th th this service, maybe. Check it out. You go ahead, Courtney, real quick. Yeah, I'm not really sure what the service does as far as copyright protection. I think it, it allows uh, original musicians to upload their stuff to this distributor. You pay twenty nine ninety five, uh, and it will then try and get your stuff or will supposedly get your stuff posted on Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera, on. And then they do not take a percentage of any downloads or subscriptions you get off of those retailers, those, those other distributors, TikTok, uh, Spotify, and so on. So I'm not sure exactly how it works. And the copyright issue, I don't know, will they defend you if so, if you have to sue somebody for copyright infringement? Do they apply yeah. DRM to your music when they yeah. upload it? Uh, there's a lot yeah. of fuzzy areas there. Hey, go ahead, Jeffrey. CD Baby is pretty much the same thing, uh, but when you start doing that, you get into a new sticky wicket, and especially if you start using your own uh, songs inside of your YouTube videos or, or whatever. Next question. Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. Anyone using the Hindenburg 2 beta for podcast editing? Go ahead, Alexander. I haven't tried the beta, but it looks like it has some interesting, well, big features. Now it actually does video and it has audio transcriptions, which is interesting. For me personally, and as someone who's an audio engineer, I just, and I don't know if they've addressed this in the beta, I cannot get past rectified waveforms. Uh, how do you correct for DC offset, as, uh, you know, asymmetry? In, in the human voice if there's an issue, uh, phase problems. When you can only see one axis of the waveform, it drives me insane, I just can't do it. Go Bill. I just can't believe they named something Hindenburg too. Is your goal to crash and burn? What's the point of that? That's just weird. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting set of tools. It looks very pretty. Um, as far as, as what it looks like, the interface looks great. I haven't used it. Uh, I, you know, I have to admit that I, part, I do the podcast in logic. And the reason I do it in logic is mostly because I want to use logic for other things. And I just want to keep on learning the keystrokes for everything. So that I, as I move faster through that, I'm, I'm doing wax on wax off, <laughs> you know, like I don't want to, uh, you know, I, I tend to want to use the same thing so that I get better at it. Uh, so that when I'm using it for other things, I can. So, but, but I, this looks, looks like a, looks like a very pretty app to use. One thing I wouldn't do is use GarageBand. <laughs> People do podcasts in GarageBand and it's, it's uh, just really slow. Uh, so I, I, would, I would probably not recommend that. Uh, next question. Chris Clark in Tempe, Arizona. How important is it to hire an audio editor to clean up and enhance the recording of each episode? Javier. It depends on how much do you the time do you spend before the recording, like setting up, like you were talking about the physical location, the the good choice of mic, uh, doing a pre-check like we do here at the morning, uh, that everyone's at the same level. Uh, talk about like when you're not speaking, mute yourself. Uh, like if you take about take everything that into account, and if you have a good recording, you can you can do a live mix, and it will work. You don't need like a special uh, editor for every episode when. You you don't pay attention to those things and you have uh, different levels, different sounding mics, different uh, people not muting themselves, like all of that, you're, you're going to need an editor. So it's like in every production, every uh, dollar spent in pre saves you $10 in the post-production. Go ahead, Alexander. 
I didn't realize I had my hand raised. Sorry. No. Uh, Chris. Um, hey, Chris, how are you doing? Uh, I think that there are two schools of thought when it comes to producing a podcast again. What exactly is that? Um, being an editor, I'm pro um, hiring editors or having people uh, work on things to make it better. But I think that, um, and we talked about, I think we touched on this a little earlier. In producing a podcast, you want to make sure that you are designing a workflow that you can actually execute in a timely manner. Um, if you have to, uh, if you have to come to a grinding halt to polish and fix and adjust and edit and oh, I, I, I need to take out all my ums. I mean, you, you might you might be in the wrong business. Um, um, I just said it. So I think that what I always advise people to do is to find a workflow that allows you to meet your production schedule. I would recommend like a week, you know, one a week. Um, and if you can't pull that off, I did it again. Um, did it again. If you can't pull that off with your workflow, then you might have to either lower your expectations of what you call a done project or extend the, the schedule. Maybe you can't do it in a week. I would try and figure out a way to do it in a week, figure out how long it takes and build your workflow around the amount of time that you can dedicate to it. You may not have time to really edit and polish. You might have to get, I think the goal about a good conversation, and I think we do it here. The goal in a good conversation is, can I do it live? Shouldn't I be able to just do it live? Um, I think my favorite podcasts are recorded in one hunk. Everything, all the sound effects, all the um, very little, very a, little post at all. And do you, do you like the sound effects? Done, done well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Done poorly. Absolutely not. Very few people can do it well. Almost nobody. <laughs> Almost nobody. <laughs> like, like, and if you're getting started, don't. No. You know, like, it's, it's, it's like, oh, you know, it, it, I, and I admit, you know, I, I look at it through the, the lens of the fact that I don't, I don't even, uh, so I, I have to always qualify this. I don't even like going to a bar that has music in it. Like, I, I like things to be quiet and I stay like home to, be able a lot. to focus on. Sorry. <laughs> Do you stay home a I lot? I do. I do. I do stay home a lot. Um, I don't like, you know, I don't like the din of anything, you know, at all. And so for me, uh, adding things like with the podcast that we do, I don't have an open. Like I don't want to, because I get frustrated. Like I'm just, when anybody has an open to a show, I'm like, like, why am I here? Like, you know, like, like, why are you doing this? You know, like, I just want you to start talking. And when you're, and as soon as I get to the end, I cut it off and I move on to the next thing. Like, and, and so, so I like the 10 seconds or 15 seconds to me is like, I, okay, fine. Like you have to do this thing. And, and, um, and, and so it's an annoyance for me. So as a result, uh, like with Michael Krasny's show, it just, I mean, it is, it starts with him talking, introducing the person, we go into it. He thanks people at the end, we close it off. And I don't want anything else other than that conversation um, to be part of that that process, and so and and that is definitely a personality thing, you know, like the, of whoever's designing the show. But I, I won't listen to I'll listen to This American Life because all the sound effects they're adding are really adding something. They're adding nat sounds and all kinds of other things and mixing in and create. They're creating a stage of 
of what you're, where you're at. So sure. them doing that kind of work, I love. <laughs> if I had the budget, I would do that too. But adding like whiz bang things to it, usually that's, I usually don't listen to those kind of podcasts for more than an episode or two. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead Courtney. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Uh, one follow-up. Uh, Alex, on several occasions, you've talked about how you can't listen to things in, in real time. You know, 1.25, 1. So 1.5. Okay. Talking so slow. Well, not you. you you're I'm Michael. To it. No, I'm horrible. Uh, the Michael Krasny show, can you listen to it in real time? Uh, no, I listen to it. If, if I, when I listen to it, I listen to it fast. I mean, I have I'm to worried listen. about you. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm, gen, I'm genuinely worried about you. <laughs> Okay. I, I think I think that this is uh, something that you you should work at. I think you need my, to slow down a little. My whole life, my whole life, the, 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 you understand that my whole life was wrapped around waiting for people to get to the point, and I finally have a tool that allows me. After after all these years, I finally have a tool in almost every player that allows me to do that, and it's just magical. Like it's just <laughs> like like oh my, you know, like like my whole, like there's there's usually and 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 you know I'm usually listening to people just going. Yeah. When I would like gonna, to, somebody has done a psychological study on this. Somebody, <laughs> and we're going to find it. I don't think, I, I genuinely, friend to friend, I genuinely don't think it's healthy. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Chris. Go ahead, Courtney. Okay. A-A-D-D, Alex. A-A-D-D. <laughs> uh, yeah, it depends, as you touched on earlier, uh, you know, it depends on the level of the podcast you're producing. This American Life, I was going to mention that, or Radio Lab. Yeah, you know, if you're doing one podcast a week and you're going to craft it and make it interesting to everybody and it's an hour, you know, it has to maintain someone's interest for a whole hour long with just audio, uh, you know, sure, you would hire an editor and do it. If it's something like this where we do it live, it, we're finished and it's posted on the internet almost immediately, uh, there is no editing, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. other than – Top and tails, and a little whispering over the closing credits. Uh, that's that's it. <laughs> exactly. So it depends on the, uh, and we don't enhance anything uh, with anything. Right. You know, well, we have you know, pretty good setups. <laughs> pretty good <laughs> rim shot. We have, we have pretty good setups. Yeah, that, that that helps a lot. I mean, but but again, it, it helps a lot that we have good setups, and that is one of the things that makes your your the quality of the mic, especially if you're doing a podcast with people with the same people over and over again the quality of their setup becomes really important. It's one thing to send out mics to someone you're interviewing, but I would not recommend doing a podcast with someone not willing to invest a little bit in their setup. You know, if they're not going to, if they're not going to get their, a good mic, don't put them on the show regularly. Um, you want to, you want to have them and almost everybody that does, I would argue that almost all the podcasts that are doing really well are m often double ending definitely have good microphones, you know, definitely are thinking about those things. Um, those are, th that's kind of, that's table stakes at this point. You know, if you're putting out a podcast that everybody's re sitting around recording bad audio, that, that was competitive 10 years ago, but you can't do it now. It's just too inexpensive to do a great job. Good, Bill. Chris, it also depends on how, how, where you're targeting. I've been doing some long form content just recently for a pretty gigantic national service. And it's interesting when I first did it, I sent in my first files and I got back some tech notes and, you know, they were very specific, like your RMS levels need to come up uh, 2 dB. So I went back and I reproduced the entire long form program. It was about 
three hours long uh, with those new f- – and then I got another note back. Well, now the peaks are hitting above our peak limiting. So I had to go back in and apply a peak limiter and get the recipe for the audio more dialed in to meet their standards. Some w- people will want that at the professional level. Other people don't care. You can be a, a, in a range of variants. So really it depends on what you're trying to go for. Just know that if you really want a big distribution, sometimes the big guns do have pretty specific requirements for every aspect of your audio levels and will require you to meet them. Yeah, the the uh, the other thing for editing, a lot of times we cut little things out. Like, oh, we shouldn't have said that. Oh, we didn't do this. And if you're doing it live, it's one thing. But if you're not, you know, if you're going to put it out to a lot more people, like the Michael Krasny show might be, you know, there might be anywhere from, 30 to 100 people watching the show asking questions live. And that's another thing that we've taken on is not just having us do the podcast, but do the podcast with people that are able to listen to it and able to have it, you know, be part of the discussion, you know. And I think like, you know, and, and sometimes there, you know, there, there's a lot of people there. Like we have Walter Merch coming at the end of the month, which will probably have a lot of us here wanting, wanting to be part of that conversation. And so you get a lot of questions in there. And that's one of the ways it's easier to generate the content is to have the audience actually be part of that. But then we also remember that there's 100 people that watched it live. There's going to be 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people that are going to watch it later. And so we want to make, if there's little things we want to clean up as far as how we phrase things, if we missaid something or something like that, that's where ISO audio becomes super important. You know, if, 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 you, if you don't have ISO audio, that kind of edit becomes really painful, you know, in that, in that area. And so uh, you also want to think about that. And then the other thing that, that, I've done with some shows. So like when we had, uh, um, uh, when we, we had someone on that was coming in from the other part of the world. So Vienna was actually, we interviewed Vienna and she was coming over the delay between our, our build, our office and her created a thing that made her sound like she was taking too much time to answer the question. And, and so I went through, cause it was Vienna. <laughs> I went through and I tightened the whole thing up. Like I literally just pulled everything together because I knew it wasn't her deciding that. It was the delay of it getting to her and back, that latency. And so I removed all the latency. And it basically in an hour, it cut about three minutes out of the whole thing by just taking two seconds, two seconds, two seconds, or, or one second or whatever, and just pulling it in. And it sounded like a much better show. <laughs> so so if, you, if you download that show, you'll notice it. You know, and, and, and I was like, I'm going to do this for all the podcasts. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was a lot of work. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm going to do that for all the podcasts. And so, 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 the, uh, so it, it started off that way. But it does, like if I, if, I was, if I had the time or I had an editor, I would definitely, and this is the thing that you always want to look at when you have, when you hire someone to do something that's good at what they do and they, and they do it, you'll, you'll make a better show because you can. Um, when you don't have that, you don't make quite as, you know, having more resources allows you to, allows you to do a lot of things. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'll, I'll experiment with a lot with the podcast, but I, yeah. Anyway, next question. Next question comes to us from Jack. What, what is Chris? What? Yeah, I, I, was, I was searching for the thing. I, I was trying to raise my hand. I just have to say, it, something you just said there tells me so much about Alex Lindsay. You said... If I had the time, or if I just had an editor that I could ruin his day, like <laughs> you saw, I'm paying them. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I get it, but it, there was something about that. If, if I had the time, or an editor, there well, was so- <laughs> hiring hiring teams is so that you, is, is is providing you with more time. Like was, you know, like there, you know, those things. That's how things get done. If, 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 I've hired you because I don't have the time. <laughs> 
or the skill in some cases <laughs> to do what I need to do. So, it, so anyway, it, was, yeah. it was just funny the way you said it. I just, sorry. You make better. Here's the thing is that, is that, and I noticed this, um, this is not quite podcasting, but Chris and I worked on a project, one of the first projects we worked on. And there were many things that I wouldn't do because it was going to be hard to edit that I then asked Chris to do because he was editing it. <laughs> Like, and, 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 you know, and, and I was, I was making very small connections that I wouldn't make on my own because I'd be like, oh, and Chris was much faster at it. And it wasn't, it was, I'm paying him to do, that's what I'm paying him to do. And so that I can be creative and say, I really don't like that thing. I really want to, this doesn't quite feel the way I want it to feel. And those things, you getting it into some, having somebody else doing that, that you're generally paying to do that. And oftentimes, you know, a reasonable amount of money that's what you do. Like, you know, and so, and podcast editors don't have to cost as much as video editors. You know, there's a lot of good people that will do it at a relatively, you know, good, good cost. One of our editors has a saying, he always says that there's, there's a, and I've said this here before, uh, Steve Navrat, uh, there's a difference between an editor and somebody who edits. And, right. and one of the things I always tell people, and this is kind of what you just touched on here was, um, you would ask me to do it, because you didn't have to like slog through the mechanics of it. And I always tell editors that that you need to have a level of proficiency so that you don't make qualitative decisions based on how hard something is going to be to actually execute it. Right. If it's if you're thinking, oh boy, that's gonna take a while, that you're in the wrong business. Just and period. And the and the thing is, it's it's not only that. If you hire an editor, it, it's I I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to do something that I creatively want to be done, and I don't know how to do it, and I don't know the best way to do it. And there'll be little things about it, like there's, you know, when someone hand, like I I was doing a countdown clock yesterday, um, and the logo had grain in it, and I and I put I, I put the countdown clock over it, and then I added a matching grain to the color of the, I, I added a matching grain to the color of uh, the, the countdown clock so that it would match the gradient and the, and the color to it. That's not something that the client asked for, but that's why, that's why you get, you know, paying attention to weird little details are the things that the client goes, oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> like, you know, that's, you know, like, and it's not something they asked for at all. And it wasn't very hard except for the fact that motion um, doesn't produce grain very effectively. Was that a byproduct of having Alan on the show yesterday? No, okay. I just, I had, it was done before I saw Alan. Um, anyway, uh, uh, next, uh, next question. Okay, Zach, your question is going to get asked. Here we go. Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Zach Phillips. Might it be easier to conceptualize what a podcast is when you accept that YouTube is an audio platform supplemented with video? Go, Jeffrey. That's a very good uh, thought right there, uh, uh, Zach. Uh, the big thing is uh, if you have YouTube Premium, one of the features of YouTube Premium is that you can shut off your phone, put it in your pocket, and listen to whatever is being said or done. And a lot of people do that nowadays uh, because they, they hook it up into the car and then they listen to the show instead of watch the show. Or they uh, they hook it up, they put it next to their bed, and they get a whole bunch of sleep sounds or somebody you know, doing some sort of meditation thing. And, and they have, like I said, they have playlists for that. So this is not only something that you can conceptualize, it's actually something that's happening as long as you have the premium access. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of YouTubers would take offense to that. <laughs> that's all I'd say because uh, the best stuff on YouTube is highly visual. And that's part of what makes it great is that it's visual. Um, I don't watch a lot of stuff on YouTube. Now I admit, 
everyone uses YouTube differently. My primary viewing on YouTube is my home theater. So I, wa I literally watch it on a 75-inch TV. I, that's, what, that's how I watch YouTube. It's just another channel like Netflix or something else to me. And so as a result, I'm sitting there watching it. It better be good. You know, like it, you better be visually um, uh, good. And a lot of those guys spend a lot of time editing. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Next question. Samuel Norvik in Norway says, are there any plans to publish Office Hours shows as a podcast? It would be great for people that can't catch the show live. We are so close. Yeah. The, yeah, we we should have done it a long time ago and we just haven't. And we're, we're it's just a, it's just one more thing that we got to get done. <laughs> we need a team that does the podcast. If, 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 uh, uh, Samuel, I'll expect you to contact us. And, and build the podcast team for us to, so we can start getting these out. But uh, yeah, we've talked about it for a while. Um, is There's a couple things we want to do. Is One is loop things live so that you could just turn on an, a channel and you would always just either see or hear the show. Um, so we're looking at that is being able to just have a looping thing where the last 11 shows are just looping all the time. Um, you know, And then we just drop into this and do it so you could just leave it on all day. Uh, the second thing is a podcast. So some people want the podcast. Some people actually just want to be able to have a radio station they can turn on and listen to us, um, you know, chit-chat. Yeah, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, as someone who, when I'm not on, I, I do actually listen audio only a lot of times with my phone in the pocket and the screen locked. So one of the things that I find would find very valuable is to have show notes if we're going to have an audio podcast because I want to know what products people are recommending so I can look at it later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Ranjan Chandil in Los Angeles. Are audio podcasts usually edited in Pro Tools? Uh, go ahead, uh, Chris. Usually is a big word, uh, Rajan. Uh, could be. You could do it. Uh, I think a lot of people use Audacity because it's free. Um, you could use uh, Adobe's, uh, what's it called? Audition. Audition. So what's it called? Audition. Mm -hmm. uh, we we produce an audio podcast for one of our clients and we do it all in Final Cut. Uh, the magnetic timeline makes it very easy to do quick pull-ups and stuff like that. What are you laughing at, Bill? I'm not laughing. I do exactly the same thing. In fact, <laughs> okay. it's so bad that I've lied to people when they ask me what I do audio and I say logic because everything in Final Cut that does the audio is just the same code from logic. Yeah, it's super convenient. Logic. They, won't, they won't think about Final Cut as an audio editor. Yeah, it's super convenient and does a great job. <laughs> Too bad. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, there's a lot of edits I do that would be a lot easier in Final Cut than they are in Logic. Because there's Magnetic like select timeline, all, baby. move over, do all the things. Yeah, yeah. It's so sweet. Mm -hmm. In, out, delete, collapse. Yeah, there's just a bunch of fine tuning that I do in Logic that I think would be harder to do in Final Cut. Uh, go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, you to say that they're usually edited in Pro Tools, I think that's a that's a tough one to say. I've been using Pro Tools for 20 years, so I use it a lot. I don't think we should get too hung up though on like it, which application should be using and which what are people actually using. I think you should just try something if you haven't see if it works for you. If you haven't actually selected a DAW, I would strongly look at suggest looking at Audition just because the sheer number of audio repair tools that Adobe packages in there are just incredible and it and it does rival pro tools so i would look there hey good bill i'm on a lot of voiceover people's sites and a lot of people use audition or audacity i'm sorry audacity is kind of a freeware program that really has a lot of functions a lot of people use that uh, i still think that final cut is the most amazing audio editor i've found generally because of the magnetism involved you can do three-point edits with one click and 
magnetism allows the other mm -hmm. clicks to be auto-generated. It's really super fast. Plus, it's got a voiceover module that'll give you a punch-in countdown, three, two, one, and insert that's perfectly clean. It is a brilliant thing, but it's not very well used. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey, real quick. And remember when uh, GarageBand took podcasting out of their app? It was, it's a, really all about if you could do more than one track at the same time mm -hmm. in a lot of podcasting, especially if you're doing one-on-one -on -one interviews. You go to Courtney. I haven't used it, but a lot of people swear by Reaper. So take a look at that. I think it's cross-platform, too. That's spoken of a lot in the voiceover community, too. Next question. Next question comes from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, uh, Germany. He says, for your information, YouTube does have an RSS feed. He's got a smiley emoji and a link. There we go. Check out that link. Uh, it turns out that they, they do have it there. And I think YouTube is just getting started with what they're doing with podcasting. So they're, they're definitely focused on it. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, next question. Uh, Ryan Shelchuk in Midland, Texas. Shuchuk in Midland, Texas, considering purchasing an ATEM for a multicam podcast. However, at this time, no one is available to camera switch during the recording. Is there any advantage in post? Go ahead, Alex. Well, if you get the ISO model, you can uh, you will have the isolated video feeds coming in, so you can do multicam edits very nicely in DaVinci Resolve with that. So I would look at that. Another option, if you have the budget for it, you could hire somebody and they they could remotely cut the show if you wanted to, I suppose. Yeah, and and you can cut. I mean, it sounds crazy, but there, I've definitely for a long time, you know, Leo was cutting his own shows on a TriCaster, and then when I did my podcast, I did that too. And you get good at it. You sit there and you start tapping it. I don't think it makes as good of a show as a host if you're doing if you're cutting and doing it because you are thinking a little bit while you're talking. So I, I don't think that's great. One of the things that I'm kind of curious about is using the video follows audio and Mix Effect Pro to feed all of those out into an ATEM switcher and then use the audio to switch. So then it just, it's very mechanical. It would just switch back and forth, but it might be better than just all four of you up. What I will say is that what I'm doing with the Michael Krasny show is, you don't see these because we're not publishing them yet, but I've been experimenting with them, is I just take Michael Krasny and the person he's interviewing and I just put them into a two up, and, you know, and we've had a couple with a couple more, I just leave it up the whole time. So do a super source. Now that you couldn't do it with little ATEM, but do a super source of them just all sitting there like a just like your little mini grid. And it just looks very nice. And especially what we're doing is getting the camera angles closer and closer and closer to being straight on. So it's just the two of them talking back and forth. And I actually found that to be um, a little bit, e it's definitely easier to do, but I, I actually liked it. You know, just seeing the two, you know, especially when it's two to four people, it's not that bad. Uh, next question. Sky Gleason on a phone from Seattle says, what is the panelist view of the BBC radio production style? Go ahead, Courtney. I like it. I listen to their news. The only annoying thing is they all have those strange British accents. I just, <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I think it's good. I, I think it's good. There is something about it that I, I tend not to listen to it for very long. So I, 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 I used to listen to it a lot and I think I got used to it. There's something about, a lot of the their IDs, the dry, uh, we talked about it before. I don't really like a lot of weird sounds. And they have a lot of things that signify what the next thing is, which I, over time, after listening to it a lot, found it annoying and stopped listening. You know, because it was, and it was dun, 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 dun and now, dun, 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 and they have these little things that they add all to it. And I didn't like that. And so I stopped. We stopped listening to it. It was really just because of those sounds. Uh, next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. How is money earned for podcast creators? What's the revenue stream financially for return on investment? We're running out of time. Jeffrey, real quick. We'll talk non-YouTube here. Uh, first of all, you have brand deals. So you call it, you, you 
talk to somebody like uh, Nike or something like that, and then they give you money and you do a podcast. Second is affiliate links. So you go, you connect up to like a Radican or something like that, and then you have a, like a 90-second ad in there. Or you do like Amazon links. So you go to my Amazon doc, uh, blah, blah, blah channel, and that's how you're going to get those links. But then they got to click on those links and they got to use your codes. So that's why you see a lot of that in, uh, in a lot of these shows. Yeah, and there's advertising companies that are... Um uh, there are advertising companies that will bundle you up with other podcasts. So PodTrack and other ones like that are, have been out there that will find the advertisers for you as well. It, it's really hard. It, it's really hard to make money on podcasting until you really, unless you have a very vertical market that you know how to, um, you know, work with. Uh, 15000 is where money starts and real money starts at about 50000 and you can turn it into a career at about a quarter million. <laughs> like, you know, like that's the that's the number that. Uh, so when you start thinking about the numbers and people start talking about numbers, it's really hard. Now you can. I've seen podcasts make a lot of money with three hundred subscribers. It was just the right three hundred. You know, these are bankers, or there's someone who you know, there are people with a lot of money moving around. Is has been the thing that that you can do, but it takes a very vertical market to do that. Next question. Ryan Shuchuk in Midland, Texas says, Alex, do you use a specific screen set or layout to no, streamline? Hold on. Oh, uh, sorry. I, what happened was on the back end, they were falling behind and I tried to catch us back up again um, because it was driving me crazy. So so anyway, uh, but you, if you refresh, you should see one above that. Uh, the uh, clients. clients. Okay. Yeah. Ryan Shuchuk again. Clients asking for on-location video podcast. Is there a four-person wireless mic solution that won't break the bank? Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, with wire, if you have to use wireless stuff, I I don't personally like to cut corners with that stuff. I would normally just rent that stuff, like rent a good one that is going to be reliable. You don't really want to mess with that stuff. If you have to make an investment in something, I don't know, like how often are you doing it? What's the ROI? Because good wireless stuff is going to be expensive. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I agree. Cry, buy once, cry once in this situation. There, a few years back at South by Southwest, I was at a panel and they were using Pile microphone, wireless microphones, and they were just getting all this crosstalk from all these events that were also using wireless microphones. They ended up connecting up to my system because I had the uh, Sony wireless uh, digital mics, and uh, that's how it got the show through. So uh, buy once, cry once. Go recording. Yeah, you could go with the DJI uh, wirelesses. They're pretty good. And the nice thing about them, they all record locally in each transmitter as well. So you'd have, if you have any transmission problems, you'd have yourself covered with uh, recordings on every single transmitter. Get two of them. You have four inputs for under $600. Just make sure they're close to the receivers. Put the receivers in the middle of the table and make sure the transmitters are facing the receivers. And I would. You should be able to record and broadcast at the same time. I would never use wireless if I didn't, if, if I didn't, if, unless I have to. If people are moving around and you're dealing with wires, now, only then get wireless. But, but I would say like it is, wireless is not something that you just throw around in my opinion. <laughs> there are just so many little things that can go wrong. And especially you go to a South by Southwest, you go to something else like that. You're dealing with so much wireless, um, you know, chaff that is just everywhere. Um, you know, if I if I have a podcast, I would be using wires, you know, into into what I'm doing. I would not be using it unless you're walking. If the podcast is you walking around, um, then that makes sense. But if you're all sitting at a table, do not use wireless. Put a, put XLRs in there and get them back to something and and record it. It's just that would you know you're just you're in trouble. <laughs> like if you're, you're going to have trouble. Uh, you're going to have breakup in it. You're going to wish that you had just wired it up. Next question. 
Uh, Douglas Carmichael's up next, and he says, Alex, do you use a specific screen set or layout to streamline podcast editing and logic? Nope. <laughs> I just open up logic, I drop the files in, I start editing. That's that's all I do. Uh, I don't. There might be a better way to do it than I do. I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm some logic expert, but that's how I how I approach it. Next question, Douglas. Again with Alex, you mentioned pris, uh, phoners as a part of a podcast. Wouldn't it be much easier to use Zoom phone or a similar tool for phone interviews because it, because it would be easier to record from Zoom. I don't do. I, I, I say phoners as a as a general term of bringing people in. I would never use a phone on a podcast like ever. Like I, there's no, I mean, unless someone's like in the way off distance, I wouldn't plan a show around someone using a microphone from their mic, from their phone. Like, it's just, that's not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, just cause I, I want to be able to actually listen to it, <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, so generally we don't even want the laptop mic. Um, so I don't, you know, so, but that's, you can decide whether people will listen to a podcast with that. I won't. So I don't even listen to the phoners from NPR, you know? So, so that's about as good as it gets. So if someone call, if, if someone is in a call in on a show, I just turn it off. It's like okay, I can, I can do something else. Um, so so I you know it depends on how touchy you are about audio. All right, there we go. That was good. Only two minutes over. Sorry, we were moving really fast at the end, trying to get to all the questions before we got before we ran off the ran off the cliff there. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great questions and keeping this uh, keeping this uh, conversation going. Uh, you know, I we really depend on you. If you're a producer out there watching, you know we're not. That what makes this show work is the fact that we don't have to come up with an hour of content. We, we explain to people like, hey, we're going to talk for 15 minutes and then we're going to open it up to the producers. And so it's great when you're able to fill out those questions and, and put lots of great questions in. And somehow uh, the producers have been doing that every day for many, many Many, many moons <laughs> at this point. I think we're at, what are we at now? 1,100, 1,200? I don't know. 500? I, I don't know what the number is, but it's a lot. So really well done. Um, and uh, thanks, of course, to the panel. We can't do this without you. This is the other part that makes it work, uh, is that the panelists are here answering all those questions from all of their individual backgrounds, which makes it uh, way, way better. And then finally, uh, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that's planning this, designing it, executing it, showing up every day to make this happen, worried about it later, trying to figure out what the content is, figuring out what the website looks like, figuring out how the schedule works, getting the notes into YouTube, getting there's so many things that people are doing um, to make this whole thing work. And we really appreciate all of your effort. All right. Um, we have, uh, let me see here. Oh, oh, whoop. Oh. Uh, 89,000 miles, almost got to 1K today, uh, 143,000 kilometers. That is 806 million, million bananas for scale. All right, let's jump into after hours. I actually have to go edit a podcast. And if you like what happened here, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Podcast, yes. That's what you're supposed to say at the end, right? Is that leaving out? Click and subscribe. Next the bell. Ring the bell. All the rest of those incredibly annoying phrases. And an angel gets its wings. I have to add YouTube shorts. Takes 45 minutes to get rid of 18 seconds. Next up on BBC. Really excited about using YouTube shorts at, at NAB. I don't know why I'm so excited about it, but I think it's going to be great. So uh, I think they're going to be a lot of fun. All right, here we go. Next year we have to have a broadcast booth there so I can be there. Bye.